and there's like a bunch of guys like on the side, like looking at you, but not looking at you, but listening to you, but looking like they're not listening to you. And that happens in real life, right? This is Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect that it cannot be complained about by my friend and yours, co-host of this show, John Syracusa. I'm Dan Benjamin. Today is Friday, October 19th. 2012. It's episode number 990. I'd like to say thanks very much to our three sponsors Harvest over at getharvest.com, hover.com, and squarespace.com. Tell you more about those as the show continues, just as we always do, and we love them. We also want to make sure that we say thank you so much to cashfly.com. These are the folks that deliver all of the content you hear at 5x5. They're really the best. They have the fastest, most reliable CDN in the business. Go check them out at cashfly.com and please let them know that you heard about them here on 5x5. Hello, John Syracuse of Massachusetts. How are you today? I am just dandy. Let me ask you a quick question before you, before you dive in. Mm-hmm. Uh, this PAX thing, this Boston PAX thing. Yes. You go to that, right? I do. All right. I'm going to go this year. You are. Well, yeah. I, I will see you there if you are willing to sit on long lines or visit me while I sit on long lines. Because that's what I do at PAX is I sit on line. Um, yes, let's let's do it. Or in line. I don't know. Wh- which one is the one that people from New York are supposed to say? I don't, I don't know. In line or online. What are you going to be doing there? Just visiting for your own amusement? Or are you going to be doing some sort of business related stuff? I have never been to any kind of PAX. And um, this this seems like a good opportunity to both hang out with John Syracuse and the Syracusans, as well as uh, going to a cool thing. Is this the good one to go to, or do you, am I supposed to go to PAX West? I go to this one. You know, you know why I go to this one because it's in the same city where I live, and I hate to travel. Right? Yeah. So, PAX but it's Prime. not the good. It's not really the good one. Yeah. PAX Prime is the West Coast one. It was the first one. I'm sure that they will say the first is the best and blah, blah, blah. From what I've never been to any of them except for East. Um, and having, but having read a lot about the other ones, it seems like East has the best convention center because we have this new gigantic convention center. Uh, and there, there's actually enough room for 60,000 people where you don't feel like uh, it's completely overwhelmed. Uh, and I think the West Coast one, like they've maxed out their convention center there, but it's not quite as nice or as spread out. That is my impression from what I've read. Oh, okay. But it seems like the same people are at both things. So you're not like missing anybody by going to East or West. Although last year, Scott Kurtz wasn't at East, but that was, he was on vacation in Australia. I think he would have missed West for the same reason. All right. Uh, but anyway, I think, I think you will enjoy it. Uh, so maybe I'll get some tickets. If you like waiting in line, you better hurry up. You know, aren't the tickets, did you already get them? Because I think they're already, the three-day passes are already gone. Three-day passes are gone, but that's just a steal. You just save, you save like 30 bucks. Yeah. But if I'm flying out there anyway, I mean, 30 bucks is, I'll just, I just won't eat one day. Well, you better hurry up and get the one-day passes, is what I'm saying. They, they sell out eventually, I think. Well, I'll get them before, before the end of the day. So what do you want to see when you go, what, like, besides, like, seeing people, other people you know waiting in line, which isn't that exciting, what do you want to see at the... The convention itself. Well, I mean, there are so many cool things that are going on there that they haven't really announced what the official schedule is. But everything I've heard about, it, especially from you, you talk, you've talked about this. But they have. Yeah, one, well, did you know they have one in? Uh, well, Australia. I guess, yeah, Australia now. 
have, they're going to have one in Australia. Okay. Yes, that was announced at uh, PAX East, or no, at PAX Prime, I believe, uh, this year. And they're you know, supposed to have one here, coming here maybe to Texas, Austin, Texas, I heard. I think they're doing, probably going to do England first or somewhere in Europe first because hmm. the international people are tired of traveling to different countries to go to these things. Yeah. So south, anywhere in the south is a, is a stretch. And I like that the first question in the general fact is, can I bring my Nerf gun, lightsaber, other <laughs> weird thing? That's the very first question in the fact. So these are my kind of my kind of people. I feel like I need you know I need to connect, go to connect with the folks that uh, that I love. I don't know if they're your kind of people. Like, uh, do they know, touch I, you a lot? Do people touch each other a lot? Uh, no, and they then they're my kind of people. They don't recognize me at all, which is uh, refreshing <laughs> from, in, in some ways. And you know, so it's a different it's a different crowd in that respect. But uh, they're my people in, in that they're mostly gamers, and right. uh, I identify as a gamer so that's why i feel at home but you identify as as a gamer identify as gamer i do uh yeah so as we get closer i can give you some advice on the uh on how to get in to see the things you actually want to see and what you'll have to sacrifice to do that right okay your sanity your (laughs) your your (laughs) well-being right eating or drinking gosh it's been a while since i've been a logan though i don't know if i can stomach it just remember that you will not get your luggage until an hour after you have departed the plane. Just, just assume that going in. Don't, don't like get all mad about it. Just like get out of the plane and say, well, our luggage will be here in an hour. What should we do while we wait? All right. Bring board games. One time I was at Logan. Nah, it's a long story. Forget it. <laughs> it's one time at Bandcamp. All right. Let's, actually, let's, let's get into the show here. Let's do it. Yes. Time for some follow-up. Follow-up. F you. Item number one with a bullet on the last show talked about uh, the magazine, Marco's new publishing venture. Uh, and I mentioned he had something called the feature, which was uh, selected uh, items from Instapaper, things that have been on Instapaper, uh, and something else called the brief. And I said that was part of Marco's The Empire. The and I, you know what? I thought that it was too. And it turns out it, he, he says it's not. Yes, so it's not so like I this that's what I get for trying to do show notes links like in the the 15 minutes before the show starts. He posted about it and the brief is a site by Richard Dun- Dunlop Walters who is the designer and editor of the feature, right? So Marco posts on his site and writes those words I'm like, "Oh, this must be some affiliated thing," but it's not. It just happens to be the same guy who designs and edits the feature, but the brief is his own thing. So Marco right. is in no way affiliated with the brief other than he knows the guy who made it. So full credit to Richard Dunlop Walters, who has a hyphen in his last name. Uh, and the description of this to remind people is a daily briefing of technology news worth caring about, edited by Richard Dunlop Walters. So there you go. I'll put that in the show notes if it's not already there. Um, and I apologize for misattributing that. But you can see how I would get confused with the the empire. The the empire? Yeah. Yeah. Second thing I was confused about, which I was surprised you didn't catch, uh, was that I was talking about your visit to The Verge and stuff when you went to New York. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I I said that uh, you had taken a picture of yourself uh, trying to look like a Neil Dash, but you were not. And and it was Neela Patel. And I missed it also because I spent so much time. We had a a great lunch with the Neil out there. And uh, and like I just it just I just messed up, too. Like I should have caught that. So apologies to uh, both Anil and Neelai for mistaking mostly, them and they're nothing mostly, like each other i mean except for the fact that they live in new york both mostly uh, apologies to anil because i don't think he would ever dress that way 
with the with <laughs> the, the spiked the, arm the spiked bracelet and and and, the, and, and the, the shades. Yeah, he's much too dignified for that. He's an amazing dresser. I'll tell you what. You if you're a dude and you want to look good, Anil Dash will set you straight. He's right. he's the man. All right, well uh, quaffed, as you would say. Some tent follow up. Tent tentus. <laughs> Not tentus. Don't do that. It's <laughs> terrible. Uh, tent.io, the tent protocol, decentralized uh, protocol for stuff that looks kind of like app.net or Twitter or whatever. Yeah. And the eternal debate over whether if someone has 30 million followers, do they have to send out 30 million uh, HTTP posts requests when they make a post so all their followers see it? Or if users are aggregated, if like a whole bunch of people are on the tent.is tent hosting server, yeah, you only have to send one post request to some url at tent.is and it will make sure that everybody who is on tent.is gets that and according to daniel siders right now it is one post per user so you would literally have to do 30 million posts if you had 30 million users 30 million followers regardless of how many were on any individual server but he says a future update to tent will optimize multi-tenant server communication so this is an optimization they have not yet made but they are planning on it so there you have it from the horse's mouth uh, actually, circling back to the magazine, one little bit uh, of follow-up on that. I don't know why I didn't have... I think I did have this in my notes and I just skipped it. Uh, but one other interesting thing about the magazine, which I believe Marco will talk about on this week's show, because he said, like, last week he talked about the magazine and the launch and everything, and he said this week he was going to talk about, what did he call it, design or something? Yeah. Uh, and this falls under the, the category of design, I guess. Uh, when you're reading the magazine and there's a link in one of the articles that you're reading, you tap it, like I said, it brings up that little... Said in the last show, brings up that little one third of the screen uh, preview of the link or a popover on the iPad. Uh, but say you decide you want to actually go to that link and you you tap on the title of the link inside the little preview, it will open the link in a web browser. Uh, but in version 1.0 and 1.0.1 of the magazine reader application, if you have the Chrome browser installed, the Chrome for iOS browser installed, yeah. it will open the link in Chrome. If you don't have the Chrome browser installed, it will open in Safari. Uh, and I think Marco was very surprised at the number of people who, like me, have the Chrome browser installed but do not use it or prefer it. Right. So as soon as I go to follow a link, it's like, why is this opening? And first I thought, <laughs> is this some custom browser view that he wrote? I'm like, wait, no, that's Chrome. Yeah. Like, it's it's switched applications on me. Uh, so he's getting a lot of complaints about that. Uh, I think I could have told him he would get a lot of complaints about that because I'm one of those users. And I'm like, I, you know, I can't be the only person who's like, oh, Chrome's out. Let me download it. No, I'll just leave it there in case maybe I need it or something only works in Chrome or whatever. Or Safari's, uh, mobile Safari's crapping out on me. Yeah, but I don't, you know, there's no, it's really iOS's fault because there's no way for you to set your default application for different protocols or whatever. Right. Uh, but that's a shame. And I think based on the complaints that he's getting, I assume he's going to uh, revisit this policy of just because Chrome is installed, open your thing in Chrome. I think people who do like Chrome and try to use it as their main browser appreciate this. Like, I can see what he's going for. Like, isn't that thoughtful? It knows that I ha I use Chrome. And, it you know, unlike all those other thoughtless applications, this one opens my links in Chrome. It's exactly what I want. Thumbs up. But uh, seems like the flip side of that, of the people who just happen to have Chrome installed, they have no recourse except for to uninstall it, which seems, you oh, know, right. heavyweight. Oh, let's see. The next bit is on the F-15, believe it or not. <laughs> did you see this bit of follow-up? I did not. What is? Uh, tell me what's right. going on with the F-15. The McDonnell so, Douglas F-15 Eagle. Strike Eagle, isn't it? Strike yeah. Eagle? I don't know, something like that. Anyway, Dave M. writes in and says, on Hypercritical 86, at some point, 
for God knows what reason. <laughs> you you asked me what I what thought the top speed of a Hornet was, and I totally blew it. Right. And I and I guess something that was closer to what the top speed for what, it, what the F fifteen would be, and then you look up the F fifteen and said, okay, you were right about the F fifteen. Like that must have been what you were thinking of. Whatever. Uh, and I think I listed off like Mach two two point five for the F fifteen. So Dave M writes in to say that the author James P Stevenson learned this is not exactly true that the F 15s top speed is uh, Mach two point five. Uh, in the preface to his book, which I have linked in the show notes, called The Pentagon Paradox, Stevenson was told that the F-15 can theoretically fly Mach 2.5, but this is tactically irrelevant. And so here are the details of this uh, that he's gleaned from the book. Uh, when the Air Force flew an F-15 at Mach 2, they had to make many modifications to the aircraft that would not be done in a tactical situation, such as removing all weapons, including the bombs, missiles, as well as the internal gun and its ammunition, mm-hmm. refueling immediately before accelerating to Mach 2, landing immediately after reaching Mach 2 because the aircraft was literally out of fuel at that point. Uh, in addition, to accelerate to Mach 2, the pilot has to hit a button on the control stick called VMAX. Uh, and the author learned... No, nothing, that, nothing to do with VMAX. No. The author learned that whenever the VMAX button is activated, peacetime's regulations say that the engine can only be run for five minutes of that setting before they have to be replaced and overhauled. There's two engines in the F-15. So the conclusion is that the Mach 2 speed is only good for air shows, for beating their Navy counterparts, and for impressing non-inquisitive members of Congress. Of course, the flip side conspiracy theory of this is they'll never tell you what the real top speed is. This is all sandbagging, and really they don't want the the Reds, the Soviets, to know what the real top speed is. But uh, at this point, uh, with the Cold War long gone, I totally believe that uh, this type of thing would happen and that they would list top speed uh, for bragging rights only, it's kind of like they do this with cars as well, uh, where, well, it, cars is a little bit different, but like the the uh, Bugatti Veyron, I forget what the top speed is, like 158 or something like that. It's something ridiculously high, but to actually achieve that speed, you have to go into a special mode that involves like parking the car, stopping it, putting like, it's not like, you know, putting like the two keys like in the submarine thing and then everyone turn the two keys at the same time and just, you know, okay, I'm going to go do to top speed run. And then, of course, you need a fairly straight flat road with no potholes that runs for miles and miles for you to get up to uh, 258. But technically, yes, the Bugatti Veyron can go over 250 miles an hour if all these conditions are met. Oh, and I believe that the Veyron runs out of fuel in like 10 or 15 minutes at that speed as well. Everyone's listening to the the, uh, the Veyron speed in kilometers per hour because of the Top Gear episode. Yeah, we don't, we don't do that. It's miles per hour. Miles per hour, king. Miles are king. They always will be. All right. Um, so I think that's it for follow-up today. That's it? Yeah, unless you think of something I'm missing. I'm no, following. Do, it's your show. Oh, yeah. that's, I mean, 15 minutes is reasonable for follow-up, is it not? 14 minutes, yeah, sure. This is going to be a short show. You know the drill now, right? Yeah, it will be a short show. Right, do you have a sponsor before we go on to topics? Or no? I, yes, I always have a sponsor ready to go at a moment's notice. And the first one today <laughs> is Harvest. Let Harvest take care of the back office tasks so you can focus on delivering your best to your clients. What does that mean? It means they handle things like time tracking. And that's one of the toughest things, especially if you're, you know, you're in business for yourself or you have a, a bunch of folks who work for you. You have a team that you want to manage. They're there in, in, in the office with you or they're remote. doesn't matter. You know, if time tracking was easy, everyone would do it. Well, that's kind of Harvest's goal. They want to make it easy. They want to make it something that is simple and straightforward. So what do they do? You can start a timer from your web browser or Bowser. You have a desktop. They've got a Mac OS X client. 
You can even run it on your mobile device. Obviously, you can use the website there. You can use the iOS app. They've got an app for everything, these guys. And then if you're the person who's in charge of keeping track of what those people are doing, they have stuff like visual time reports that'll help get your project done on time. It'll help you keep track of the budget, how much you're spending, what you're spending it on. They do all this stuff. And they have professional invoices you can send to your clients. And if you have payment processing stuff, whether it's PayPal or authorized.net, whatever, you can tie it in. You can accept payment right on your website. How handy is that? It's very handy. That's how handy. Now, let you try it three, free for 30 days. If you don't love it, just let the trial expire. You don't even have to give them a credit card. I love that too. But if you do like it, and I think you will, then there's a code for you. First of all, go to getharvest.com slash 5 by 5 to create your trial. When the trial expires, you want to keep using Harvest. Enter the code 5 by 5 at checkout, and you'll get 50% off your first month, no matter what plan you pick. And that's good through the middle of November, so do this soon. Go try it out. Getharvest.com slash 5 by 5 The chat room has been discussing the Veyron. David Smith, no underscore today, says... Ooh, that, that how the, do we know uh, it's the same dude? It's not the uh, same dude. I think it's the same one. Uh, uh, that the, the, the Veyron Supersport does 267 miles per hour. Uh, and the regular one does 253. And Casey List says, that for, based on his recollection, the secret sequence to achieve top speed in the Veyron is that like there's a keyhole in the door jam, and you have to put the key into there and twist that first, and it lowers the suspension and prevents the spoiler from dis- deploying. It does all sorts of other things that right. are important for top speed run. Veyron, boy, that's an ugly car, isn't it? Do you know what, do you know what that looks like? Mm, no, not off the top. But all right, all right. It's ugly. Take my word for it. Okay. It's a shame that the fastest car in the world should be so ugly. Mere decades ago, the McLaren F1 was not ugly and was also the best car in the world. But now we do. Now we just have the Veyron. It's a shame. All right. Uh, So I had, I wanted to talk about Twitter and app.net usage and stuff today, but two other topics have snuck their way in ahead of it. Uh, I think the first one, we'll have to talk about the October 23rd Apple event. I don't know how much you've talked about this on other shows. Only a little. Uh, I, we, we talked about it on Amplified, and uh, I was, you know, I was trying to kind of get out of Jim what uh, what it might have, what else might be happening besides the iPad Junior, but he was not really, um, he was not really willing to say. Yeah, we should talk about that. I'll I'll talk about the the iPad Mini, not Junior, first, and then maybe the other things. Okay. Right, so for those who don't know, it's October twenty third. This is the Apple event that we are all expecting to happen in October because like they're going to do one for the iPhone five, and then in October there's going to be another event, and that's where they're going to introduce the little iPad. So people were getting worried that like you know we haven't heard anything, and it's getting into October now. When are they going to announce it? And then there was the you know maybe there's just not going to be an October event. Uh, which I, I have to say, I was starting to get on board with that because as October wore on and there was no announcement, I'm like, maybe they just didn't make it for the holidays and they're just going to have to wait till next year. And then if they wait till next year, it'd be like March or something, you know, because you have to like, you have to give a grace period around Christmas so that people don't hate you because they, you know, I got an iPad 3 for Christmas. And then like in January, they replaced the whole line of iPads and you feel terrible right. about these, this paperweight you got for Christmas. It's useless. Might as well just smash it to bits. Right. Uh, but it looks like they're going to make it. Uh, and I can't imagine that they're going to have an October 23rd event and say, and this stuff isn't shipping until the new year because that would be death and it would be incredibly stupid and Apple does not do that. So they've got something to announce that's going to ship for the holiday season this year. We all assume 
one thing is going to be a smaller iPad, which we've been calling the iPad Mini or the iPad Junior or whatever. This is uh, 10 a.m. Pacific time in San Jose. Some people are talking about why the heck is it in San Jose? Because they usually have their events in San Francisco. But, you know, it's just booking for venue or something. Uh, So this is another case like the iPhone 5 where we've talked about this little thing for just just months and months now, right? We got spy shots, speculation about the specs for just, I mean, maybe it's even been more than months. It seems like forever we've been talking about this. And it's another case where it seems like we know everything about it going in, right? Just from like all of us obsessing over it and rehashing the specs and the price point and stuff like that, that we're like, we've converged on something and we all expect to see this event on the 23rd and not be surprised, right? right. Do you do you expect to be surprised? No. Does anybody? No. It seems like we've all got it nailed down now. Uh, that could be a time for Apple to surprise us, but, you know. All right, so anyway, to review what we all think the specs are going to be. 7.5-inch diagonal display at 1024 by 768, which is the original iPad and the iPad 2's resolution. Uh, that is not Retina. It's 163 DPI instead of 264 DPI for the iPad 3. Uh, and based on our previous hashing of this out, it's like, well, won't all the buttons be too small if you take the original iPad screen and squish it down to from you know 9.7 to 7.85? And it, reality is they won't be too small. All it will do is make the touch targets, 44-pixel tall touch targets, exactly the same size as they were on the original iPhone. Uh, it's smaller than they are on the current crop of iPads, but it's not smaller than things are on the iPhone. So it's still within Apple's own self-mandated guidelines of don't make anything that's, low, that's smaller than 44 points uh, on the screen. And of course, Apple itself violates that all the time, like the, uh, or at least visually violates that. I'm not sure what the actual activated touch target areas are for things like uh, Notification Center when you swipe that down in iOS uh, 5 or 6, the little clear targets where oh, you want to clear right, notifications. Right, right. Or like I found in the new in iOS six in the new version of the App Store, there's lots of touch targets there where you like you want to disclose more of a, the description of an app, and you have to t- tap the word more with like a little triangle hanging down from it. You can't like maybe that touch target is 44 pixels, but because visually real tough at to, it, to nail. I feel like if they are 44 pixels, it's it's psyching me out to see to not see some a 44 pixel tall uh, point tall box that I have to hit, and I have to like you know I gotta aim just for that word, and yeah. Uh, but anyway. Uh, basically we've all agreed months ago that this screen that we're talking about if it is a reality fits within all the guidelines it doesn't it doesn't change doesn't make things too small to hit it's not ridiculous to assume that an ipad could be pushed onto a screen this size uh people won't have to write rewrite their ipad applications they'll work as is like you know everything's a go there um there's been some debate about whether we'll have wi-fi and 4g or just wi-fi uh, I guess I guess this is my last chance to make predictions, so I have to give my predictions as well. I, be, I believe that screen rumor. I believe there will be a Wi-Fi model, and there will be also a model that also has 4G. Uh, why do I think that? Because they've got the chipsets to do it, uh, and all, the iPad line has always had this, and I think it's a great advantage, and I really hope it has this. So it's, it's 50% me hoping that it has 4G, because I love that feature of the iPad line. Uh, I wish the iPod Touch has it, had it, in fact. And the other 50% is just, it's always been that way and they've got the parts to do it, right? Uh, pricing is the real, like the only remaining mystery because of course, you know, pricing, we don't have much to go on there. We can't, there's not going to be, there's going to be parts leaks and we've seen leaks of the pieces of the case and the screen and all sorts of other stuff. But pricing 
you know, according to all the stories we've heard from inside Apple, can happen really at the last minute. Like, it's nothing you need to prepare for. You don't need a factory for it or whatever. Someone just decides this is the price point, and then you just update all your databases and push it out at that price point. Uh, the easy answer for pricing, the one that getting the most support of it if you just pulled the entire Mac nerd community is that it will be two ninety nine for a sixteen gigabyte Wi Fi version. That I think is the easy answer. Like I don't want to have to put my stick my neck out in any way. Uh it seems a little bit too expensive, but then again, this doesn't Apple stuff always seem a little bit too expensive. It, Apple can command a premium, blah, blah, blah. Right? Like this this device presumably would be able to command a premium over the other devices that are similarly sized, the Nexus 7, the, the Kindle Fire, stuff like that. My answer is, my conservative answer is 249 for a 16 gigabyte Wi-Fi model. And that, that's my conservative answer because right. I feel like 299 the whole point of this product, as far as I'm concerned, is to hit a price point. It's not to make something smaller. It's not to bring new features or anything like that. It's to hit a price point. Uh, and you know, if if that's its reason for existence, Apple can totally support a 249 price for the 16 gigabyte model, uh, and I think that would uh, that would make more of a splash. So that's my my conservative answer. My optimistic answer is 199 for a 16 gigabyte Wi-Fi. I also think Apple can hit that price. That's optimistic because just because they can hit that price, it's like don't we get most of the benefit at two forty nine that we would at one ninety nine? Because realistically, all these models that I'm talking about, the bottom of the line sixteen gigabyte by Wi Fi. The Apple's going to upset, you know, people are going to buy the 32, right? They're, you know, or they're going to buy it with 4G or like this. This is to get you in the door. I would love to see a breakdown. I don't think Apple gives us breakdown because it's competitive info, but I would love to see a breakdown of how many of the super duper low end do they sell versus how many people are they able to upsell into like the 32 gig or the 16 gig with 4G or whatever, right? Like that gets you in the door to say, oh, you're shopping around for Kindle Fire. Well, did you know there's a new iPad out that's the same price? Mm-hmm. It's not. You're, you're going to walk out with, with an iPad that's going to cost you way more than you would have spent on a, on a Kindle Fire, but it'll get you into the store. And once you see it, maybe you can, you know, figure that out. Some people in the chat room, and I've seen some other people asking about an eight gigabyte model. I just don't see that, like, Apple's getting out of the 8 gig business and I it would be a terrible shame if they did 199 gig. Like that's that would be an Apple move to give you to try to to put the low end machine to be a crappy one that no one should ever really buy. You know like they used but to do wouldn't, like, wouldn't Apple I mean just think about this. Wouldn't Apple rather have something in people's hands even if it even if the experience is I mean and you know the experience would be fine mm, with an 8 gig. I think it would be fine. What if you're on, you know for, for a student for a, for a, a junior high kid? 8 gig is going to be fine. I disagree. I think the 8 gig is just fine. I think Apple should absolutely make one, especially especially if it gets it into that price point because then they can come out and say, you know what? We have a device here and the device is good and it works well and it's under 200 bucks. Like that. No, it, 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 come it on. Can't, it can't happen though because like it, you're right that it's, it's still a useful happen. device for apps and everything, but you can't do anything with media in it. You can't have your iTunes collection on there. You can't you use Spotify. Season, season of TV shows. Then you Spotify. Uh, use know, Netflix. That's, that's, that's a geek. That's a geek solution. There, I, I still I'm feel ch- like I- people want media. Like one movie blows you, and the, the reason I think this is because, like we said in the past shows, storage management on the iPad or an iOS is still kind of a pain and geeky. Like there's not a nice experience when you fill up your iOS device. There's not an easy way for you to figure out what to do, right? I can imagine people just being like, just just fumbling and feeling frustrated or whatever. And th- since they dropped the eight gig models of the phones. Like now the minimum phone is 16. 
I've got to think that. Yeah, also, but wasn't think, there wasn't there a time where the minimum iPad was below the minimum phone? I may uh, be remember. Uh, I may uh, be misremembering that. Maybe the jackals can can tell us. I was like, didn't they do like an eight gig three GS or something? Hmm. Like, yeah. The, the, no, I, I think eight gig is is a, is a non-starter. And really, how much more money do you think it costs Apple to get sixteen gigs versus eight gigs of flash? Like, just in the component costs. Like, it's it, it's not. They don't have to put it this way. They don't have to go eight gig. To hit one ninety nine, Swilliam uh, says. Swilliam says all iPads have started at sixteen gig. I'm just saying, I yeah. think I think there is still room for an eight gig. I would not buy this. No one should buy it. No one. <laughs> but I, you never know. And uh, didn't it, Horace Dead? You put up a uh, a chart about this. That you did. You mention that. If not, we should put that in. I thought you mentioned that. Uh, but they came up with a. Uh, he came up. They. It's a he. iOS portfolio price distribution. And he does in his chart. Have you seen this? I'll, I'll. I have not seen it. I will message this to you. Did he tweet it? That's the only way I see his. I don't know if he tweeted it, but it's going to be in the show notes. I'm also dropping it into the chat for the jackals, uh, and I will put this into the show notes. He basically just kind kind of goes over all the variants and what he thinks. Uh, The iPad Mini, and he lists an iPad Mini with eight. uh, The the W next to the eight represents whether it's Wi-Fi. There's a W for Wi-Fi only and a C for cellular. He lists an iPad mini, 8 gigs, with Wi-Fi only, and he prices it at 249 I'm guessing, because it's mid between the 200 and 300 So 250 bucks is his guess at the entry level. I mean, like, I know I'm almost kind of contradicting myself, because if I say this is really about hitting price point, like, isn't it important for Apple to get down as low as they possibly can? And if they just... If they just feel like, oh, we just got to have those fat margins, and we, you know, I just... I'm, I'm still... I'm still anti. I, I think they shouldn't make one, and I think they won't make one with, uh, at eight. I think they'll they'll start at sixteen, but I, I could be wrong. But anyway, uh, regardless of the storage size, those are my pricing predictions. Two forty nine is my conservative answer. At one ninety nine is my optimistic for the bottom line. Whatever the bottom line happens to be, I really don't think the bottom line is going to be three hundred. Even though that seems to be the way that everybody's leaning, because I really truly believe that the purpose of this product is to hit a price point. Um, now. As we've discussed in the past shows, and as people keep turning up, you can't sell it for two forty nine or one ninety nine. the 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 entry level good iPod Touch is uh, two ninety nine. Let me just double check this. I keep getting the prices wrong, but that's right, isn't it? That does sound right to me. You guys supposed to look it up. iPod. The chat room, the jackals are irate that there be that an eight gig would even exist. Yes, I'm, I'm irate at the day. By the way, you can see the shows, uh, show notes and links uh, by going to 5by5.tv slash hypercritical slash 90. That will show you all of the links and stuff that we are referencing. So if you want to follow along uh, at home, you can do it that way. Yeah, so the, the, the modern iPod Touch, the one that comes in colors with the tall screen and everything like that, it starts at $299. Uh, and that's, of course, for the 32 gig. And they still sell the old iPod Touch uh, for $199, which is the small screen and, and stuff like that. Um, so the question is, how can you possibly sell this bigger thing? Like you're selling an iPad, a 7.85-inch iPad, and you're going to sell that for, in my optimistic case, $100 less than the cheapest modern iPod Touch you can get? Isn't the 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 small iPad, isn't that just an iPod Touch with a much bigger screen and battery? How do you take a device, put a bigger screen and battery on it, and then sell it for 50 or or $100 less than something else? Uh, so there's a couple of answers to that. First is 
we've all been talking, debating whether the iPod, iPad mini is going to, the bottom of the line one is going to come with 8 or 16. But certainly no one thinks that the bottom of the line iPad mini is going to come with 32, right? But the bottom of the line iPod Touch does come with 32. So right away, you got half the memory chopped off there, right? And the memory price doesn't increase like linearly. It's not like when you go from 8 to 16, uh, it costs a certain amount. And then when you double again from 16 to 32, it costs the same amount. It You know, you're adding 16 versus adding 8. So going from 16 to 32 is a much bigger jump in terms of component costs, especially since then you're starting to push up into the maximum size of the individual chips they can give you. I forget how many chips they use for 32. Is it one chip? Might be one chip at this point. But a one 32 gig chip is way more expensive than than uh, one 16, and it's also more expensive than two 16, and you know, there's space constraints inside the iPod Touch and stuff like that. Uh, the second thing is the screen on the iPod Touch, I assume, will cost more than the screen on the iPad Mini. Because the screen on the iPod Touch is Retina, first of all. It's really, really good quality, second of all. Uh, and, you know, it's 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 basically the iPhone screen. And it's a new product. Like, they, no one has made this screen before in these particular dimensions. This dot pitch with this quality, with the integrated touch sensor. This screen was created for the iPhone 5 and also the iPod Touch. Whereas the screen we're all assuming is going to be in the iPad Mini uses the same display technology as at least the same you know pixel size as many many past uh, ios products doesn't necessarily mean that th- this screen won't also include an integrated touch sensor like it doesn't have to be the same exact screen as, as was in the 3gs or in one of these other non-retina things just scaled up but i have to think that they're not going to say you know what the ipad mini needs iphone 5 quality screen they said that about the current line of ipod touches they're not going to say it about this so i think the screen even though it's bigger that component will actually cost less than the iPod Touch screen or the iPhone 5 screen. Um, the battery in the Mini has to cost more just because it's bigger, I'm assuming. There is some premium for miniaturization, getting a battery, a small battery or whatever, but you know, I think just because it's going to be so much bigger, battery has to cost more. The motherboard, the chipset, the camera, all those parts, etc., I assume they're going to be the same as they are in the iPod Touch. I guess they could cheap out by making the camera cheaper. Uh and they're not they're not above doing that. They've done it with the the iPod and the iPad lines in the past. Right. There got to be some kind of compromises. Uh, but I think their main compromise is that they're going to be willing to have much lower margins than the low end model and hope they sell people the higher end one. Uh, but the main reason that this is not a problem for this thing to be fifty or hundred dollars cheaper than the current you know best uh, you know the colored iPod touches. I hate the fact that I have to keep saying that because they keep selling the old one. Uh, the main reason is that no one is cross-shopping these devices. No one is going in and saying, I don't know, do I, like, if you want a tablet, you're not shopping the iPod Touch. And if you want the iPod Touch, you are not shopping that tablet. You're not going to go in looking for an iPod Touch and say, oh, did you know for $100 cheaper you can get a, an iPad? You're like, but I want a thing that I listen to music when I jog, or I want a thing that fits in, in my purse or in my pocket. Like, no one is cross-shopping those devices. Like, you know, I don't even think people will notice that there's a difference in price. And if they do... Like it won't make a difference. It's not. It's not as if this causes some sort of uh, consumer confusion and outrage over pricing. This is outrageous. How how can this iPod Touch be so expensive uh, when this bigger other thing that is totally not a replacement for this product? Uh, you know. So I I have no people ask me on Twitter and stuff like that. How do you think? How will this affect the pricing of the iPod Touch? How will people react to it? I think the two things have no relation to each other in the consumers' minds, and it just won't affect anything, and no one will care. And in, in reality, like when you buy the iPod Touch, the bottom of the line one is 299 
if you buy that, that's it. You're all set. Like you don't have to go, okay, well, really I should double the memory and really I should think about getting 3G and you know all this other stuff and I should buy a smart cover for it and I should do all like the, the iPod Touch at 299, that's it. You're all set. That is a, a very it's an excellent device, which I'm probably going to get. Uh, you don't need to buy anything for it. You don't need to think about upgrading it. Whereas when you go into the store looking for your 199 or 249 iPad mini, first you're going to be like, well, maybe I should get the 32. <laughs> and then you're be like, well, I got to get a smart cover for it. And what should I think about the 3G model? The 3G is what, 100 bucks more, 120? Well, that might be handy. Like you're not walking out of there. Like it, I think most people are going to walk out of the, the average selling price to use a, a, some Asimco stuff here. Is going to be higher for the iPad Mini, despite the fact that the starting price I think will be lower than for the iPod Touch. The name. That's another thing that is really not that important. Uh, it's even less important than the price, but it's one of those things that we can't guess at because that's something that Apple totally can keep under wraps, and they do. I know you like iPad Junior. I'm hopeful. Uh, it's not going to happen, but I know it's can, not going to happen, but it, it won't stop me. Enjoy it for enjoy it while you have it. The this mini. Is, do, you, the, do, you, do you think the mini? If you had to pick one, would you say right now it looks like mini is going to be the one that people pick? Uh, I'm more comfortable eliminating names, and so I'm I'm eliminating Junior. Uh, I'm I think I'm going to eliminate Air. I know Gruber just posted that he thinks it's Air. I I believe in his philosophy. Like we all agree that like. Well, he, he's more about this thing being thin and light, and I'm sure they will emphasize that. I still think it's all about price point, but that's not that's not really what you make your ad campaign on. I, iPad, the new iPad Mini now super cheap. Like you have to say something about it, and they're going to say, "Look, it's light. You can hold it in one hand and read your book, and it's great for your kids." Because whatever. Uh, but I don't think they'll use the Air name. Well, here's what he here's what he says. His guesses in order: number one, iPad Air; number two, iPad; number three, iPad Mini. Yeah, so I'll, I'll get back to Air. Uh, iPad with nothing, that seems like a bridge too far to me. But, you know, like, because the, just taking it out of the iPad is fine because, well, I don't know. It, it could happen, right? iPad Nano was his third one? Uh, no, he says uh, the first one is iPad Air, second is iPad, third is iPad Mini. Yeah. Mini, even though I keep calling it that, it just seems natural for me to call it that, I have trouble believing that Apple would name it that. So here I haven't just eliminated. I think like every every possible name we could think of, I don't think is going to be the name. Uh, if I had to circle back to Air, I have to think that like my feelings about Air have a lot to do with me not liking the name and not so much Apple not doing it. And if I think about how they're planning on marketing it, if the, it, obviously like they can't market it as a price point thing because that's not good marketing, they have to think of some quality of it that sets it apart. And if they go with the lightweight thinness and just how, you know, then air is their name for that. But that does seem confusing to me. I don't like that. The suffix is crossing over from the, the world of the same thing. Mini has the same problem crossing over from the world of the Mac. You got the Mac mini, right? Nano is the obvious choice that wasn't on that list. That's like, it's from the iPod realm, iPod nano, right? iPad nano. No, no name I can think of rings out to me as like, that's the name they've got to pick. I think, Every name we listed except for Junior can work. Just a plain old iPad, they could wake it work. I mean, people will figure it out, right? Uh, because, like, again, getting back to iMac, iMac comes in two different sizes, and it's not called the iMac Mini. It's just called the iMac, and you can get it in different sizes. So why not just have it called the iPad, right? Is there, well, hang on, is there a chance that they, one of the things that we've heard discussed, and it makes perfect sense, is that the new iPad, whatever it's called, is going to have 
uh, a lightning connector, do you think it's possible that they will also announce the larger size iPad without any changes except now it comes with a lightning connector? Instead, yeah, we should... I should admit that I have not that we have not have productively discussed the name. And we should move on to what you're asking about, which is all right. We assume there's going to be this little iPad Mini. We've all talked well, no, about this it. does connect the to the, this does connect to the name, and I'll tell you why I'm asking it. Is this would be an opportunity for them to sort of rename the iPad, the larger iPad, probably not the iPad Senior, although I would very much enjoy that as well. Uh, the iPad Junior and Senior, we can hope. <laughs> but uh, mo- this this could be an opportunity for them to say, hey, you know what? We're, we, we love the Lightning Connector, and so do all of our, so do all of our uh, customers. So we're switching to the Lightning Connector. So here is the new iPad. And let me show you the two new models or sizes of the iPad. We have the 7-inch uh, iPad, and we have the 10-inch iPad, both of them now with the Lightning Connector. Here you go. And look under your seat. Everybody gets one. Do you think they're ready to replace the iPad 3? Only with the only change being, I'm just saying this. The, the only I, change being the connection? Yeah, what if? I don't know. Yeah. I'm not saying yes to this. I'm just saying yeah. if they did it, then this this could be a way that they just say, let me introduce, this is the, the iPad. And there are two sizes for the iPad. And which size iPad do you want? Do you want the iPad 7 or the iPad 10 or whatever? You know what? Whatever. Uh, but this, the, I I just don't know. I, I think, you know, again, and you're, you were just making a comparison to the iMac. Uh, I, I think that, you know, when you get an iMac, you're, which iMac are you getting? Well, what size screen? And that's the way that they referred to them. Well, the, wouldn't that make sense to kind of unify the brand of the iPad as well and say, what size screen? You don't get a MacBook pro light and that's the 13 inch you just get it's a macbook pro 13 or is it a 15 or 17 they don't do they make the 17s who knows how long ago did the three come out the ipad 3 i will find that out yeah so it it would be so much cleaner for them to just rev the whole line yeah right because you know they're like they kind of did with the phone it's kind of easy with the phone because there's only one right so now all iphones come with lightning connectors march, like all march 16th 2012 yeah that's the release date for the third generation iPad, which is just called the new iPad. If if the, here's what I think, I think uh, obviously lightning connectors are coming to every single product that has that, you know, it's just a matter of time. Right. So if they, you know, option one is just bring out the iPad mini, whatever they call it. It has lightning connector. Obviously nothing else does. And they get revved uh, on a different timeline. And then eventually everyone has lightning connectors. So that's option one. Option two, I think is uh, rev the whole line. Uh, and either drop the two, which I and replace it with a mini, which I think is is very likely, uh, and then bring out a new three with a lightning connector. But how, you also have to have other changes. It's not just that it has the lightning connector. Some other changes, even if it's just like, you know, a, a die shrink A five X or something. Like it has to be different beyond just the connector. It just has to be. Yeah. Uh, you know, they want to make it thinner if they can, or make it lighter. Maybe that's not possible. Maybe when they do the die shrink on the A five X, they get away with having a smaller battery. Then it's back to being thinner. Like, I do not think your option of, like, uh, uh, having just the lightning connector change, I don't think it's going to happen. I, I see, see no reason they would too, do that. Too, too much work for not enough change. Yeah. yeah. I, like, but, I, but I agree that it is really weird. Like, can you imagine buying something in, in, uh, in February of 2013? And, like, you go into the Apple store and you see all these devices with the lightning connector, like all the new iPods and, well, not the classics, I guess, but, you know. <laughs> The iPod Nano, the iPod Touch, and the the iPhone 5 have these beautiful little lightning connectors, which are really neat. I've played with them now. And 
then it's like, and our top of the line iPad has this big gaping maw on the bottom of it that you jam this horrible looking printer parallel port type thing into. And like, and that's our top of the line iPad. Like, how long can you sustain that? You know, it, you know, oh, it's got so much, a much nicer screen and it's faster. All this is true, but like, ugh, right. So I really hope they rev the three die shrink, smaller battery lightning connector alongside the mini. Uh, but I think they're just going to introduce the mini and let those two ones sail off into the holiday season mm-hmm. as is and replace them in March. I think that makes the most sense. What if they call it the iPad 7.85? Snappy, snappy yeah, name. Very catchy. Yeah. Uh, as as for anything else, Retina MacBook Pro 13-inch, I know you had that be in your bonnet about that last time uh, at the iPhone 5 event. Yep. Didn't materialize. Nope. You know, it, it's just, it could happen. You know, there's no, nothing was preventing it last time. You know, they have the technology to do that. It's just a question of, like, their priorities and whether they think it's worth bringing out and, you know, all the other stuff. Uh, I still wonder how much they're going to want to confuse the focus of the show because if you saw the little invitation advertisement, it looks just like the advertisement to the original iPad launch with the paint splatters. It seems pretty clear. And it was like, we have a little more to show you or something, <laughs> some pun on the thing being smaller, right? right? So the focus What if of the it's iPad is, little? Yeah, no, I don't think so. <laughs> if that happens, we know that Apple's officially entered the Wii stage of its name, product strategy naming, uh, product naming strategy. Uh, yeah. Sponsor, so, our second sponsor, let's do it real quick before we wrap right. this one up. It's squarespace.com, everything you need to make an amazing website. It's fully hosted. It's completely managed. It's a drag and drop. You can't get easier when than this when you want to build a website. I was out in, in New York uh, a week or so ago and visited these folks and, and uh, it's so cool to see the people behind the scenes making this software and it, it really is awesome. It's what we use for the 5 by 5 blog. It's what I use for Big Week and uh, we're working on a couple other things that we're using for and, and it doesn't matter whether you want to do a blog, whether you want to do a website, whether you're trying to do an image gallery, a portfolio site, you can do it with Squarespace and if you are a developer uh, and you would like to have full control over every line of HTML, every line of CSS, every bit of JavaScript. You can do that two ways. You can uh, you make a developer account over there, developers.squarespace.com. And then you can use SFTP or you can use Git to manage it and you control it. And you, you pick the design that you want and you can completely customize this thing. And uh, it is really, really, really cool. And the Squarespace folks really, truly do uh, support developers, designers, and people who know nothing about either and uh, when you sign up for Squarespace, you get a free custom domain name if, uh, if you pick up uh, the year plan. You can just do the month-to-month plan, too. It's 10 bucks a month. It's $20 a month for the unlimited plan. And remember, they do all the hosting. They do all the scaling. Your site will never go down uh, because of traffic or something like that. You don't have to worry about it. You sign up for a year, you get 20% off. Two years, 25% off. And combined with this, even if you just do the month-to-month, use the code DANSENTME10, number 10, DANSENTME10, and uh, you will get an additional 10% off. You can find out more by visiting them over at squarespace.com slash 5 by 5 And that will support us here in the show and all the shows we do at 5 by 5 Squarespace.com slash 5 by 5 Check it out. A couple people asking in the chat room if I had seen the iPod Touch and everything. Yes, I've been to the Apple Store. I've seen the, many iPhone 5s both in and out of the store. Uh, my wife has an iPod Nano now because she wanted to replace her old Nano despite the fact that I don't like that device and think it's gross it's actually a little bit less gross in person because it's so darn small a lot of the things that like they're zoomed they've zoomed in on certain design features on the apple website but the actual thing is so small that like oh well 
that kind of fades into the background now that the entire thing is small and I'm not staring right at that horrible volume rocker. But yeah, I don't particularly like the design, uh, but it's much better than her extremely buggy old Nano. I found that with Nanos, like they start to get flaky after a while. I don't know what it is about them. Uh, shuffles too, I guess. I don't know. They just wear no, the out. Nanos, the Nanos are the worst for that. They just stop working. It's very weird. Strange software glitches. Yeah. The song won't play. You have to hard reset the thing. Yeah, they're, you know. Or like it doesn't, it, the screen doesn't rotate. Yeah, it was interesting to see the reviews of that. Who who was it that gave it? Oh, it was, it was Paul Therott. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Like it's a, a, a Win Super Site or something, a Windows site. He loved the new iPad, uh, iPod Nano. Thinks it's awesome. And then you know the Mac nerd sites are like, meh, panning. Like it's, it's expensive. Maybe this the, maybe this one was actually intended for Windows users. Yeah, I don't know. Never but, know. But anyway, she has the little lightning connector thing. And so f- for the iPod Touch and the iPhone Five, now that I've spent more time with both of them here's uh my design complaint about both of them about this new design uh actually it's more of an aesthetic complaint so the the iphone 4 design with the two sort of oreo cookie pieces of black glass or white glass sandwiching the that steel antenna band that look and also that feel was expensive to me like it felt it looked and felt expensive because the the glass was nicely curved around the edges and the the metal was just kind of uniformly colored and you know it just it seemed like something that was expensive right and the iphone 5 people talked about like if you zoom in on it with like a microscope it's just amazing that these these tiny little details and the amazing precision of like the 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 gaps between the little pieces and the little chamfer around the edges and everything i agree all that is amazing uh, and it it's very solid because it's a solid back piece and everything but the fatal flaw, aesthetically speaking and feel-wise, in both this and the, the iPod Touch, which just has a metal back, is the seam that goes all the way around the top front of the device, right? So you, in both cases, you have kind of like a, uh, a, a one-piece back that, you know, includes both the sides and the back. And the iPhone has like the glass regions on top and bottom. But basically, for the most of the length of the thing, a one-piece back that comes up, and then you have a front plate that's put on it. And that seam between the front plate and the rest of the device, it's, it's microscopically small. Like there's no gaps in it. It's not, it doesn't, it doesn't look cheap or anything like that, but it makes like there are, particularly on the iPhone five and even on that touch a little bit, the, like the edges of those two things that meet, those are sharp edges. They're not rounded. And there's tiny little sharp, like you'd have to look at it under like a, a you know, a credible macro photography to see the tiny right angle ledge that exists between the back and the front. But the result for me is when I put it in my hand, I find myself fingering that seam title uh, it, and it, and it bothers me. Like it feels cheaper to me than the, uh, you know, much chunkier joinage between the, the pieces of glass front and back on the other thing. And also like the, the lack of symmetry because the iPhone four was always, you know, so symmetrical, the front glass, the back glass, same thickness thing in the middle. Obviously that was a much chunkier phone, but that kind of like a glass and metal Oreo cookie of the iPhone four design that really did feel expensive to me. And even though this one is thinner and lighter and, you know, better in all those ways, that one that one seam and it goes all the way around the front edge. Like, I don't know what else they could have done because it's two pieces, right? They got away with it with the iPhone 4 because there was three pieces. It was the front piece and it was all rounded, big, chunky, smooth glass. And then there was the metal and then the thing on the back. And this, like, they've made that seam as small as they can possibly make it. It really is like you can't even imagine the yeah, fingernail in there, right? But it's just not pleasing to the finger to run over that transition in, in the device. I don't know. Have you found this? And yes, you, very much. Like, I don't know if I'm being crazy. And, no, and, no. You've, you always identified these tiny little things that 
once you talk about them, all of our listeners will start to be irritated by them. Yeah. And like, I bet I have to think that if you were to talk to, you know, Johnny Iver, the people who designed this or whatever, that this, that like, they would acknowledge this trade-off in this design. Like, yeah, the other design hit was better in this particular regard in terms of the feel of how it feels and, and, and how it feels more expensive in that regard. And, but the iPhone 5 is, you know, so beautiful and finely detailed and precise. And they, they even made that part so incredibly precise. But, like, what else are they going to do here? Like, th- to get the old feel, first, make it a one-piece phone? Like, maybe that's, maybe that's the future. The thing is one piece and they slide all the guts into it, sort of like how they jam them into the uh, the terrible Apple TV remote. <laughs> they, you know, they shove all the guts in through the one little opening. <laughs> right. Maybe uh, they make an iPhone that really is one piece, because then you can do all sorts of things. Like, that's the thing about the iPod, the new iPod Touch. It has the rounded back and the tr- rounded metal back. And that feels a little better in your hands as well. Like, the, the curves feel a little bit more pleasing that's why a lot of people like the original iphone because it was curved and right. to some degree the 3gs because it was curved but i'm not totally saying you have to be curved like that's why i'm saying the iphone 4 design was successful in feeling solid and expensive even though it wasn't curved even though it was kind of awkward and squarish or whatever uh just the, the transitions felt more expensive uh, and, and the ipod touch like the whole thing is a little bit cheaper because it's just got the one piece metal back and you can tell it's not as beautifully finely crafted as the iphone 5 but it's got the same seam issue so for me, this won't make a difference because when I get my iPod Touch, and I do plan to get one, but I don't have it yet, I'm going to put a big silicone case on it, and that's going to cover up that gap, and it's not going to be, you know... I'm not saying this is a reason to not get an iPhone 5 or an iPod Touch. I'm just, you know... That's my assessment of the design, having handled the thing for a significant period of time from, you know, friends and families, iPhone 5s, and the iPod Touches in the store multiple times, all that. And I visited the Tesla store in our mall, too. It's very weird. Selling electronic cars, yeah, in, in a store. You know, they had they had the the Model S there. They had they didn't have the other one. The what is it? The Roadster, and they had the cool disassembled chassis thing showing like the battery on the floor and oh, then right, the suspension right. and everything. I, I brought my son in there thinking, hey, well, wouldn't it be cool to see like a car disassembled like this? He was not interested. Why do you think that was? I don't know. Maybe it, it requires some. You know, maybe the intellectual background of like electric cars versus internal combustion, and what would possibly be cool about a car, or being curious about any of these things, is like, eh. Or maybe he'd just been in the mall too long at that point. That's another possibility. So it was a family picture day. We'd uh, been there for a while at that point. Where do you do that, Sears? No, not Sears. There's a, a place in the mall. They should be sponsored the show. Portrait Simple. Why are they not sponsors? It's weird. I don't know. Yeah, but anyway, it's one of those places where there's just. It's not like Sears. It's just a photographer with a handheld camera and a series of, you know, backdrops and props and lighting rigs and all sorts of stuff like that. Uh, We mostly go because we like the individual photographer who takes our pictures and we always get her to do our thing. So it's more of a personal relationship than a business relationship. It's a trust thing. Yeah. It's very expensive, too. (laughs) But, you know, at what price memories, right? Yeah. So All, right, respect. Next- All right, you want to do our last sponsor? You have more. I don't know how much, you know, you, you threaten that it's going to be a short show. We're 55 minutes in. I want to make sure that we get the uh, last sponsor. You tell me. You tell, say when to do it. We'll do it whenever you want. Uh, yeah, you should do it now, just All in right. case. Just in case. Hover.com, simplified domain management. Love these guys. You know, regular people think of about a .com or .net or whatever. Of course you can register those. I like the .co. I like the .tv. You can register them all. You have an idea for a domain name? You know the exact one you want. Type it into the search box. Boom. You got it. Serious. It's not available. They'll show you some alternatives. Doesn't matter what you want to do. But here's what I want to tell you about today. Because obviously, the whole experience is geared at this place to be simple, elegant, straightforward. They do a lot more than just the registration part. A lot of people have domains registered somewhere else. 
Well, if you use the code Dan sent me, you'll get 10% off a transfer. They do the whole transfer process. I've seen a bunch of people on Twitter saying to me, oh, I just transferred 10 domains and they did the whole thing for me. They did the whole transfer for me because they do that. They have a domain name transfer valet service. You're already a customer. You still want to use the thing. Use the Dan sent me when you renew 10% off. And these guys, they don't, they don't hassle you. They don't throw tons of stuff at you and make you sign up for things that you don't want. They give free who is protection so that you can preserve your privacy. They have a toll-free number to call if you need, if you ever need help. I use their DNS. I, I, I do. There's another company that I sometimes use for DNS stuff, but I'm using them less and less these days because the DNS management that Hover has is really, really great, really easy to use, built in, free. They also do email hosting, not free. But you can still get 10% off, Dan sent me. So check them out, hover.com slash Dan sent me. Great sponsors up there in, uh, in Canada. And uh, thanks very much to them for making the show possible. Hover. Hover.com. All right, this is related. The next one is related to the October 23rd Apple announcement and is also an announcement that happened this week, preempting other things in my notes here. I think it happened this week anyway. It's the announcement of the Microsoft Surface pricing and availability. Yes, sir. I, and I think it's just for the, the RT version, right? The one with the ARM one? Uh, the pricing, hang on, let me, uh, let me I'm see. Pretty, what... we, did, we did a show on this uh, that I put in the show notes. The title of it was 22 Degrees, and it was episode 73 of Hypercritical where we talked all about the Surface yeah, based I on do, their video. I do not see pricing for the Pro, but the Surface, uh, uh, surface with Windows RT and will be available in three models, 32 gigs for 499 32 gig with the bundled with the touch cover, which has the keyboard in it for 599 and a 64 gig version also with the touch cover for 699 coming pre-installed with Office 2013 Home and Student Beta. There you go. Yes, and uh, if you go back and listen to... I've forgotten already. So episode 73? Yes, episode 73, 22 degrees, to hear about the, the hardware specs. We spent a long time talking about these devices. One of the things we talked about was how... Uh, the very clever keyboard integrated cover comes in two varieties because apparently Microsoft could not decide which one of these was best. One they call the touch cover that has, it's very thin and it has keys on it and they de, de, they sense like the force of you tapping them, but they're not like mechanical keys that go up and down like separate little entities. And the other one is called the type cover, which actually is, is also thin, but not quite as thin and actually has keys that move up and down. So the touch cover separately is $119.99 and the type cover is $129.99. All right. So, and, and I also, we also talked about on that show, you know, why aren't they giving us price and availability? Like they said that the Windows, they said that the ARM version, Windows RT thing will be coming out, you know, sometime before the end of this year. And I think they said the, the Intel based one that acts more as a traditional PC is coming out sometime like months later or whatever, right? So this Windows RT thing is code for, this is not going to run all the Windows app you already have because it doesn't have any emulation. It has an ARM CPU in there. Uh, Microsoft has recompiled, obviously, Windows for ARM, and they've got a version of Office that runs on ARM of this thing as well, but it is not your PC replacement type thing. Unless you just want to do Office stuff and email and whatever, you can get away with it. But it's more, it's more, this is clearly the competitor with like the iPad. So, even though on the show when we talked about this, we were like, are they competing with this? It seems like they're competing with the MacBook Air. Which they're like, look, you get the best of both worlds. You get a tablet when you want it, but you get a really lightweight, small laptop. Because if you can, you know, especially for the Intel one, uh, 
you can run all your regular Windows software. It runs Windows 8. It's not a separate operating system like iOS is. It runs the same Windows 8 that your desktop things would run. And it's got that, you know, the Metro environment and the desktop environment and this weird split. And, you know, the, the software is still a bit of a muddle. But hardware-wise, it's like we can't price this at $799 and say, oh, well, it competes with the MacBook Air. Because it doesn't really. Because this is not, it has an ARM processor. It's not going to run all your, your existing Windows software. You're kind of starting from scratch with this thing. Uh, they're giving you a boost with the office stuff or whatever. So the the pricing on this is not that surprising. And uh, it's hard to even know what to compare this to. Uh, because like, what, what would you say is the most comparable other thing that people would be cross-shopping uh, for like the 499, 32-gigabyte yeah. uh, Surface? What, mean, it, what is that cross-shopped against? You, you know, you, you would think maybe a laptop, like a true laptop it may be like yeah because like windows laptops like the, they're cheap piece, piece of crap windows laptops you can get in for 499 and then it's right? familiar you know what to expect it's got a cd-rom drive it's got your vga port it's got all of the things that as a windows user you would expect and there's but it's gonna have massively more storage though. oh yeah and like you can run all your software on it so i i mean i i don't think this is actually going to be like price wise it seems to be in that ballpark but Anyone who who is looking at this and then reconsiders and looks at like you know a, a crappy Windows laptop, they're not. They've changed products at that point because this is not going to run any of your Windows games, any of your existing Windows software. It might not even have Minesweeper and Solitaire. I don't even yeah, know. Yeah, that Windows would be like tragic. Forget it. That if you could return to the store immediately, right? <laughs> That's uh, the reason most people buy like a PC is for Minesweeper. Yeah, and well, you, can you get the internet on that? Yeah, you can. So, like, <laughs> looking at this against iPads, like, it's not, first of all, obviously, it's not competing against the Nexus 7. It's not competing against the Kindle Fire. Like, this is a different category of device. It's way faster. It's it's bigger. It's, you know, all that other stuff. It, it, if you look at iPads, what is the equivalent iPad of that? 32 gig uh, Wi-Fi only, because these don't have 4G, right? So, can you, what, if you try to get a 32 gig iPad, uh, Talking about the iPad three, like the the yeah. modern good one. Yeah, that's that's five ninety nine. So you're hundred dollars more for the iPad. Right? So maybe we say, okay, well that's not what you're really competing against because you know what this Surface thing has a, a, a one thousand three hundred and sixty six by seven sixty eight screen. It's one hundred and forty seven DPI. It is not the twenty forty eight by fifteen thirty six two sixty four DPI right. iPad three screen. So this is kind of a different class of device. Like you're not it. It's in between. It's like, is it retina? Is it not retina? It's not really retina, but it's also way higher DPI than than like a laptop screen would be, right? So, but still, you can say, okay, that's not the same really device. That's not fair. So let's try the iPad two. Can you? You can't even get a thirty two gig iPad two. You can only get it in sixteen. Sixteen Wi Fi only in sixteen three. So sixteen Wi Fi only is three ninety nine. So that's a hundred dollars cheaper. So they've kind of split the difference. Like their bottom of the line cheapest surface thing you can get. The smallest it comes is with 32 gigs, and it's $499, and it's $100 less than, than the cheapest iPad 3. You, well, actually, yeah, if, if you're willing to give up storage, it's exactly the same price as the 16 gig iPad 3, which is $499, right? Uh, but if you want to exactly match the specs, the closest you can get is you, you fall between the iPad 2 and the iPad 3. And I assume the iPad 2 is not long for this world. Like, it's probably... As the mini comes along, I expect the iPad 2 to fade away and, and be replaced. And then I don't think people would be cross-shopping the iPad mini with this thing because this is just going to be 10.6 inches, which is even bigger than the iPad's 9.7 inches, mostly because it's 16 by 9 instead of 4 by 3. So the, the uh, aspect ratio is different. But I think that's a good selling point for our customers because if you look at an HT movie 
uh, on a 16 by 9 screen, it's the picture's just going to be bigger than it will be looking at that same thing on a 4 by 3 screen. And this is one of those things about like old people watching standard def content on their HDTVs. <laughs> yeah. But you, you've all seen people who are watching a, a high definition movie on their iPad on the plane and they have it zoomed in to fill the whole screen. Like they're making their own pan and scan and there's no panning and no scanning. They're just <laughs> chop, They're just chopping off the edges. Why? Well, because it's bigger. And my yeah. kids do it too. They watch their little things on Netflix and like, the, like, why isn't it filling the screen? I'm like, but it would chop off the sides. I just want it to fill the screen. <sighs> you know, what can you do? Uh, but so 16 by 9 is better for that. So I, I think this is not going to be shopped against the mini. Uh, it's going to be shopped against the big ones. Now, the interesting thing is when you start getting into these other models here, like that, that 32 gig Surface for, for 499 it doesn't come with the with the keyboard cover. And the first Surface ad they had is just totally emphasizing, look at this cool magnetic cover, and it's got a keyboard built in, and you can use this thing like a laptop. And, like, that's the whole selling point. So this 499 model is, like, only sucker is going to buy that. You know, it doesn't even have the keyboard part. It's like they're selling you half the product. It seems almost criminal to sell it without it because that's its big, unique proposition. Yeah, I guess, yeah, that it runs Windows. But, like, no one wants to use that Office for Windows RT with their finger, right? I know you can use a stylus with it and all that. It's just... You know, the, the the keyboard cover also has a little trackpad built in, by the way. And right. you can use the mouse. Like, so that's the whole point of this. So what happens when you get the cheapest one with the cover? $599 for 32 gig with the with the touch cover. And we don't know if these covers are any good. Maybe the touch cover is execrable. No one should ever buy it. Or maybe that's actually better than the type cover. We don't know because I haven't spent time with these things. Right? For $599, 32 gig with a touch cover. What's the equivalent to that? Well, well, geez, if you want to do something similar with an iPad... You're already at five ninety nine for thirty two gig uh, iPad three, but then you got to buy the Apple Bluetooth keyboard or something similar, like fifty or sixty bucks. And by the way, a cover because they're two separate things. Because you want the protection. So this guy's out there with like what I assume most people will buy for the Surface would be the five ninety nine model with the touch cover. You've got a tablet with a keyboard and a cover in right. one little p- package and right. you can carry it around. To do the same thing with an iPad, you've got to get the, the, the iPad that costs the same amount and then spend 50 bucks for the smart cover and you know 70 bucks for the Apple Bluetooth keyboard and you have this unwieldy thing that you have here and the total price for that is $717. You're starting to get into like, this is what people really pay for iPads, like in the real world. I think right. very few people just go out of there, I just want the cheapest iPad and they get it, they walk out of the store. No, they go by the aisle with the touch cover and if anyone is interested in the Surface, it means they want to type something. And so then you got to buy a keyboard and then you got to find a way to carry the thing with the cover and the keyboard. Right, six ninety nine for the sixty four gig black uh, touch cover uh, service thing. Sixty four gig iPad again with Wi Fi only. Six ninety nine plus the cover plus the keyboard eight seventeen. So it seems like the Surface for the most part is undercutting the iPad three if you want to do the same things with it, which I think is a smart move on their point. And I, I like these price points that they put in here, with the exception of that thirty two gig no cover thing. I think this is A, probably the best Microsoft can do, and B, realistically speaking, in terms of what you're actually going to pay, you will end up paying less money for the same capabilities on this thing. Unfortunately, perception-wise, because the numbers line up so much, I don't know if people are going to realize that. Like, how much, how much did, I should take a survey of everyone I know, how much did you actually pay for the thing that you consider your iPad? And I bet nobody that we know came out of that store for anything with a 5 in front of it. We all spent like $600, $700. Because like, well, I get the 4G. It's $130 more. And you're gonna, everyone bought that stupid smart cover for the outrageous price because it's just so darn handy and, uh, and cool. Even if you hate it now, you probably bought it the first one because you didn't know that you didn't like it. 
people walk out of the store paying a lot. It's like a car dealership. You don't get like the base model with nothing in it. You get the options. You get the floor mats. Sometimes you get the undercoating. It just happens. That's what happens in Apple stores. (laughs) You can't go in there and just come out with nothing. You just end up with accessories and you feel good about it when you do it. You're like, you're happy. You're walking out that door with all your stuff and your accessories and you shop on an Etsy for a cool case. (laughs) Steam like Totoro made out of leather. Handcrafted by hipsters somewhere. Like that, that's what happens with the iOS experience. Like, it, so I really think people, if you just looked at the numbers, like on their budget at the end of the day, you say, "Boy, you you spent a lot less money than that guy with the iPad for a device that is actually less unwieldy and uh, and has better capabilities." Uh, and like I said, the iPad two is barely in this picture, and even that's not competitive. Like, if you want to get a, a sixteen gig iPad two. With a cover and a keyboard, it's $647. And that's $50 more expensive than the 32 gig uh, Surface with a touch cover. Uh, so, so this is just hardware specs, just prices. Obviously, there's so much more to this than that. Like, you're getting to buy into the whole iOS ecosystem. Uh, who knows if, if using Windows 8 on a tablet will be acceptable, pleasurable, you know, understandable to anyone at all. There are so many unknowns that I'm not talking about here. But just in terms of what kind of hardware do you get for your money? The Surface, I still believe, has a very interesting hardware proposition. And it's like, I can be a little laptop, I can be a tablet, I can be both. I'm an all-one compact unit. That is, it, assuming those touch covers are worth a damn, assuming those things that you type on are, are in any way better than an on-screen keyboard, uh, they've got an interesting proposition, and I think their pricing is reasonable. But they have a big uphill battle to bring their currently non-existent ARM Windows application ecosystem to come anywhere close to competing with the massive iOS ecosystem. Uh, but I did spend a lot of time staring at these numbers, and I do feel like they they have done the best that they possibly could. I'm not, I'm not, it, Microsoft has nothing to be ashamed of with the pricing of these devices. They may have something to be ashamed of with the actual reality and functionality of these devices, but I don't know. Do you have anything to add to that? Are you going to get yourself a Surface? Uh, you know, I'm probably not ever going to get one. I do like the clicky sound and everyone needs the clicky sound, but no. You got the, uh, the Nexus 7, right? I do have a Nexus 7, mainly because I was, there were two reasons that I got that. One is I wanted to see what the modern current Android experience, you know, the straight Android experience from Google. I was very, very curious to see what they'd been doing with that because my, all of my experiences with using Android came from, you know, whatever bastardized version of Android, whatever carrier did to it. And uh, usually that was like Verizon. So I really wanted to see that. And the second is I wanted to get a preview of what it was going to be like to, uh, to use the iPad air or mini or junior or whatever it's going to be called. Because that form factor is very appealing to me. I prefer that form factor to the larger form factor of the 10. So that, that was why. And it's, it's a fine device. It's, you know, it, it's surprisingly good and gets surprisingly close to the kind of fit and finish that you would want from Apple. Uh, and I do not really use it. And it's tiding you over now, basically, until you get your iPad. Journey. Yeah, but I don't use it much because it's, because <laughs> it's Android. But yeah, it's good for, you know... If if it if there were better email clients and please don't email me with the list of better email clients on Android I've tried like pretty much all of them. Um, if it had better email, the browsing experience is just fine. You know the the music experience is just fine. But you know I, I live in a kind of different ecosystem. But I try. I'm I, you know I just don't use it a lot. I still use it. 
And I, I love that form factor. I mean, that's, that's the winner for me. Yeah, I wasn't that interested in, in even just like finding someone who had a Nexus 7 to try it out or anything like that. But I have to admit, I'm very interested to see the Surface. Almost to the point where I was considering like asking Microsoft PR if they would send me one and I would you know review it on the podcast or something. Because I'm very curious about this hardware. A lot of the stuff about it is unprecedented or very interesting. Like it's from Microsoft, it has this weird construction techniques, the integrated keyboard, the weird OS. Like it's a lot of intriguing stuff. I would love to get my hands on one of these things and, you know, play with it. I have to say that going into it, as intrigued as I am, I, my assumption would be that my review of it would not be good. <laughs> but, you know, I'm curious. Like, I'm very interested. Like, I, I don't, I, my preconceived notion is that it's overly ambitious and they weren't able to get it done in the first try. Uh, but I do admire the ambition. And I think design is very interesting. Uh, and if it wasn't for all their other handicaps, I think they would be like the most worthy competitor to Apple in the tablet space by far but they just have so many handicaps and they're so far behind that it, you know it's kind of like the lumia phones which most people agree are the uh best most interesting competitor to uh, apple's phones but they're just they're just tanking in the market like for a variety of other reasons and it's like oh it's a shame like you know they're much more interesting and innovative and seem like they're not just clones of what apple is doing they're doing their own interesting thing and they've generally gotten positive reviews but the sales of them just stink for whatever reason so something more for uh, Horace to talk about in his show. Yeah. But I fear the same thing happening for the surface. You, right, don't, you uh, don't really, you don't really fear it. Eh, I, at this point, I'm kind of starting to feel bad for Microsoft, you know, I'm, I'm almost entered into the pity phase. Not quite, I guess. Like I'm still not, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'll never get over my Microsoft related childhood trauma. Maybe <laughs> I'll just, I'll just never, just never recover from it. But, uh, I applaud like I applaud anybody doing interesting stuff in technology, and they are doing interesting stuff. And I, I don't know how I square that with my my continued staunch refusal to buy a, a Microsoft game console. But I don't know. I'm, I'm not saying I would buy a service. I'm saying if someone gave me one to review, I would review it and talk about it. But if not, I'll have to go. Like I saw when I was in the mall, same mall trip. They had this was before the pricing and availability had been announced. They had a kiosk thing in the middle of the mall, like a gigantic kiosk, like the size of a small store instead of just one little thing. It was like a, you know, a square of countertops, Microsoft surface coming soon. Big sign, like, you know, popped up in the central part of the mall. And I assume like, well, you know, I haven't heard of anything about surface availability, but obviously it's going to be coming out sometime soon because you don't put up the kiosk in the mall unless the thing is imminent. And sure enough, a couple days later, announcement of pricing availability. And they talked about these pop-up stores where obviously the the few Microsoft stores are out there are going to have them, but where else might you see them? I guess they don't have enough confidence in the retail channel to just say, oh, well, just, you know, go to Best Buy and look somewhere and you'll find this surface thing sitting on some terrible counter next to a bunch of, you know, saying we're going to make our own little things in the mall temporarily. We're not going to rent out space. We're just going to, you know, put up a big kiosk and everyone come take a look at this surface thing in the holiday season while you're walking around, maybe on your way to the Apple store, stop off and look at these tablets. I think that's a good idea for Microsoft. And I yeah. think that is probably the only way I will find and touch one is to go to that kiosk in the mall. Although I would like to believe that I'm not actually going to enter the mall again for the rest of the year but i know that's not probably not the case because you don't want to be in the mall around the holidays you, you, you pretty want. much have to stop going to the mall before october's over yeah like well halloween is close now that's yeah, it's christmas that's season. it yeah all right so i'm gonna squeeze in this last one maybe not squeeze it and maybe maybe i will squeeze do in. my normal 
short show reneging and go long. We'll see. Okay. Because I assume next week we're going to just be talking about the iPad Junior just the whole time. See what I'm doing for you? I'm giving you a couple of, a few more instances of hearing your favorite term before it fades away. Love it. And if, if they actually call it that, you should you will have the most triumphant episode of Hypercritical. Yeah. If, if will, yes. The title, I will let you choose the title of the episode. You can it call will be it something you want. in Syracuse County, Bridges, something. We'll have a parade for you. Nice. It will be it will be your greatest victory in life. You're fairly but, confident. But it's not gonna happen. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Twitter, app.net, and all this stuff like that. I talked about in the last show that I wanted to discuss based on what Merlin had said on his show about how he uses these services and uh, how he views them and his problems with them and stuff like that. And as I said before, this may be a repeat topic, but I think it has some new angles on it based on the emergence of app.net and stuff like that. Uh, so I'm going to try to talk about how I get value out of Twitter and app.net. Okay. That doesn't mean that how I do it is how you should do it. This is not a prescription to say, here's how you use these things. Uh, I'm just going to describe how I use them. And hopefully by explaining what I do, maybe you can see a way that you can get value out of it, even if it's not the same way. Uh, All right. So I use Twitter a lot. I still use Twitter a lot, even in the app.net days. It is the most common thing I do on my computer after email and web browsing. Uh, in fact, I would if you saw the breakdown, I would wonder if it, you know it might be encroaching on those two things. It has almost entirely replaced RSS, even though I still use that news wire to read news. I do it a lot less. Uh, and a lot of people are surprised by how much I use Twitter. And they've, you know, I've been using Twitter since uh, January 2007, so for a long time now. And I would mention that I use Twitter back then, and people would say, what is Twitter? And of course, now they don't say that anymore. Uh, but they may be surprised that someone like me would use it because I guess Twitter gets kind of getting the same rep as like Facebook, you know, like a like the popular service. Right, that, right, you right, know, right. But, why, but you're supposed to be a computer nerd, don't you? Use something nerdy? It's like, well, yeah, I do use app.net. But anyway, uh, <laughs> like, but at this point, it used to be people would say, Twitter, what's that? And I have to explain to them, well, you know, explain the whole deal and try to explain. And they're like, oh, I don't really get it. But now everybody knows what Twitter is. Uh, they just like at this point they've tried it probably once or twice and then it's like i just don't see the point and then they keep seeing people using it and they come back to me a year later oh you're still using twitter and then they they're like well maybe i should try it again and they go and try it again like no i don't get it and they, they just they feel like they should be revisiting this thing because people that they whose tech opinions they respect use it but they, every time they try it, it just doesn't seem like and i got some feedback about that like i've tried to use twitter and it's just it's not for me and like and that'll be fine. And then a year later, they'll go like, maybe I should try it again. Maybe it'll be different this time. And the same thing happens, right? So I think there are people out there who feel like they should use Twitter or should like it and just don't every time they, they do use it. It's kind of like Facebook in that, well, the difference is that I know everybody uses Facebook and I know everyone looks at me as an alien because I don't use Facebook, but I feel no compulsion to go back to it and say, is there something I'm missing in Facebook? No, I I have the confidence to know that my my selection of not using Facebook at all is the right one for me. But with Twitter, people seem, because it seems so lightweight. It's not like you're committing to anything big. Maybe you should just try using it. It just doesn't give them any value. Uh, so here's, here's how I use it. Um, the, the, and the things to, to remember about Twitter. The first thing about Twitter is that Twitter is in public. Uh, yes, there are direct messages where you can send a message to somebody that no one else can see except for the recipient. But I am generally terrified of direct messages. Uh, and I think for good reason. Like I prefer one-to-one communication to you to using one-to-one protocols. Email uh, in its normal form is one-to-one. Instant message is one-to-one. Because if you make a mistake, 
when you're sending an instant message or an email, worst case scenario, your private communication goes to one incorrect person. If you make a mistake with a Twitter DM, the result is that you show your thing to the entire world. Right. And I have enough followers to know that even if I just reach for that delete button and hit it the second after I do it, someone caught it. It's in their client. It's cached. You know, they got a screenshot of it. Like, it, you know, direct messages may exist, but like, I, I'm so scared every time I use one that I'm not using the client correctly. Is the client giving me feedback that I'm sending a direct message? You can just type D space username space something else. But if you have a space before the D or you mistype the D or when I type that D, is this really how it's going to work? Or is this one of those clients that's just going to post to my public timeline a tweet that says D space something else, right? I do not. And I'll do, you know, I'll do private messages amongst people that are inconsequential if someone sees them, but I just prefer not to show anyone else. But nothing really private goes over there. So the bottom line is that Twitter is a public thing. And this is the first thing that people, I think, have to understand about Twitter because Facebook is not public in this way. And I know there's all this crankiness about Facebook. Oh, it's making everything public. And it's got kind of the same problem. It's very difficult to make something private and feel confident that you're doing it correctly and blah, blah, blah. But Twitter is really public. And you have to, you have to approach it as like a, a town square, a forum, everybody is there. Everybody can see everybody. Pretend DMs don't exist. If you're using Twitter and using tons of DMs, you should really be considering going to IM or email or something different that's better suited to that because you will end up sad. Eventually, you will end up sad if you're using <laughs> Twitter direct messages extensively. Um, so given that it's a public thing, should it be used as a broadcast medium? Like it can be, you can use it like a blog. You can say, here's this thing, it's in public. I'm going to share my opinions or my, you know, my insights into the world. And I'm going to put them out there for everyone, just like you would if you posted to a blog. I got a, I'm got a Tumblr page. I'm going to post my thoughts here. Everybody can see it. Now, same thing with blog. There's been like live journal where you could limit your audience to just certain people and really tightly control it or whatever. But in general, blogging and Twitter, you can use them as a broadcast medium to speak to the entire world. Right. And what happens next in Twitter is interesting, more uh, different than what happens in blogging is because what happens next on Twitter after you have opined to the world (laughs) is that you get replies from the world and the replies are in the exact same format and on equal footing with the original. The replies are not like that. You you reply to a tweet with a tweet. It's it's a more balanced format than I write a big blog post. And if you're lucky on my site, you get a little comment form and your stuff is down at the bottom. Or you can reply in your blog and try to somehow point your blog at my blog so people know that you're responding to me and with links and everything like that. In Twitter, there's exactly equal footing for the initiating event and the subsequent ones. And eventually it blends into a single stream of stuff, stuff, stuff such that there is no clear initiating event such as a blog post with a series of comments on it. And it feels more like more egalitarian, more like a conversation because the original person and the responders are all on equal footing and eventually it's not clear who's who and it's just one big long thing, right? Now, using Twitter as a broadcast medium has similar problems that, uh, as blogs with comments because, you know, you, if you say something and it's controversial or people don't like you, then you get a bunch of people replying and saying you're a bad person or whatever and you get, you know, trolls in the comments and, you're, you know, it's the same type of thing. In practice, I find it's not as bad as blog comments. First of all, because only people who follow you see your tweets so, in theory, people are following you because they're interested in what you have to say. Yeah. They're not going to accidentally wander across your Twitter stream. Like, they could wander across your blog because it just happened to be linked from something they're reading, something they're reading, and they go, oh, this guy's totally wrong about that, and then they're a big jerk to you. That won't happen in Twitter 
unless a bunch of people like RTing you and stuff like that, retweeting you. Uh, but in general, it, it, it keeps your audience smaller to the people who have expressed an interest to you. 140 characters keeps the crazy tamp down a bit too because crazy people like room to stretch out. Like they like to have just big unbroken paragraphs of, of like text like from the notebooks in seven, right? That's, you know, and having to be, you know, having to be evil, there's a whole bunch of evil that just doesn't fit into 140 characters. And yeah, they can spam you with replies and stuff and you can block them and stuff like that. But it, it's not as bad as blog comments. So that's one way that you can use Twitter and that I do use it a little bit as a broadcast medium. They call it microblogging, right? This is, this is microblogging. I'm doing it. It's blogging. I, I, this term sounds like one of those, you know, douchey terms that you shouldn't use or whatever. But I think it's an apt term here because it ex- fully expresses that you're doing something in public in small doses. Uh, I like it because it's a way to get my thoughts out quickly. You don't have to like, oh, I got to make a blog post and I got to pull up the form to put it in. And I got to write it up and then I'll spell check it and then I'll read it over. And it's like, no, just fire it off. Get my thoughts out of my head quickly and easily. And incidentally, I think as I've said, I think I've said on past shows, I like blog comments because I like getting feedback. I don't, you know, the negative aspects of blog comments, yeah, they exist, but I think the positive far outweighs the negative. I like getting comments. I like on my Ars Technica stories, I love reading the comments for them. The Ars Technica has very high quality uh, commenters and readers. So maybe that's not the norm. And maybe if I was posting it someplace else, I would just say, oh, comments are worthless. But I like good comments. So I like the fact that comments quote unquote to things that i say on twitter have equal footing with me and it becomes an interesting exchange and if you have enough followers and i i do you can learn a lot from the replies because the people who follow you know things that you don't are smarter than you are have experiences that you don't have and their replies can give you lots of information the same thing reason i like comments you learn a lot from reading the comments or reading the replies to your to your uh stuff so that's so microblogging is one way to use twitter and one way that i do use it uh, another possibility, another thing that I've heard talked about and that I do a little bit is small group communication. So it's where Twitter is like a little room where you and your friends or other like-minded people like your click or whatever, hang out and talk with each other. Right. And the, you know, the, the Twitter salad days of when it was all just nerds and we all knew each other that you've talked about on other shows that Merlin has talked about. A lot of people talk about, Oh, back when it was just the nerds, uh, 2007, you know, even 2006, like, it, everyone wasn't on Twitter. It was just us. And it felt like a small, tight-knit community. Like, like it was a club. And it's just, you know, it yeah. was comforting to be in a place with people. Like going to PAX. Know. Like going to PAX for you. Maybe not even that big. Yeah, it was PAX, is, PAX is big. But yeah. Uh, and a, a lot of people have bemoaned the end of those days. Right? Uh, wasn't it great when we all knew each other? And uh, and it was like it was like we were all hanging out, kind of more like like more like a singleton conference type of thing, where you know by by even going there, it's like certain type of people are self selecting to be in this group, and you can just talk to everybody. Even WWC is kind of like that, where you know it's in public. Like when you're at Singleton, you're you're in public, and everyone is there in a big room, and you're kind of talking. But it's not like in public, public. Like your boss isn't there, right? Your mother's not there. Uh, maybe your wife's not even there. Like it's not, it's just you and some group that you're hanging out with. It's not totally in public. So it was slightly less public and, and people don't like it when that changes because if they like that kind of atmosphere, then eventually everyone's on Twitter. Your boss is on Twitter, your boss's boss, your, your in-laws, your mother, your wife, your friends, everybody's there. So there's public and there's public public. Uh, and I think no medium that is public like this can ever stay in those small group communication salad days. They just, it just can't, it, you know, 
app.net is a great example because right now app.net is in its salad days. It's a bunch of nerds who paid 50 bucks all hanging out in a room, right? Even, even charging 50 bucks at a certain point if app.net is, it continues to live on as a thing, these salad days are going to end because I the people who have $50 to use the I have $50 site as an example, that is not a very particularly fine implement with which to divide up the population. There is a huge range of people who might be willing to pay $50 and they're not all in your little click, right? Eventually those days will end. So if you, if you like that, if that's what you want is a place for me and my friends and other people to hang out uh, and we want to keep it like that, like I don't mind if we all hear each other. I don't mind if like your a friend of your friend's friend hears me, but I don't want like the entire world to be there. Don't use Twitter and app.net enjoy it while it lasts, because I have to assume that will eventually end there as well. Because any public thing, even if it's public and takes fifty dollars, eventually you get the whole cross section of of you know, not maybe not the whole cross section of society with the fifty bucks thing, but you will you will get people who are outside what you consider to be your circle. Uh it it will just you know, even if it's uh, other people who have similar interests but not quite the same, and you don't know them, and you're not connected to you in any way, suddenly you're in, they're in they're in there as well. You're, it's not going to last. So if you want that, try something like Glassboard, uh, which is uh, Brent Simmons' uh, new application yeah. slash service, where you can make a private. Well, I don't know. You, you describe Glassboard. I, I haven't used it. As, have you used it a lot in conferences? And stuff? I have not used it a lot. Um, it's it's sort of like your own private. Idaho slash Twitter experience that you can kind of invite people to and then you tweet and you can post little things and it's pretty cool. I mean, I could, if you are trying to keep track of folks at a conference and you don't know where they're going to be and they all have the app, then it's sort of golden because if you have ever been to one of these conferences where there are a whole lot of people and they're all trying to meet up and, and it's not organized and you see them on Twitter like everybody's Twitter experience is kind of delayed and different. And, you know, one person might not get a notification that everyone's supposed to meet up here at a certain time. And it becomes very, very confusing. Glassboard fixes all of that and it can email you. And anyway, it's very cool. Uh, I have not yet had the opportunity to really use it at, at one of those crazy conferences. But if we go to South by this year, I think it's sort of mandatory. Like you can't function in a, in a conference. At, maybe I'll use it just with you at PAX, just you and me. Make our own glass boardroom. Yeah, and the reason you can't use Twitter for those things, and believe me, I've tried, is that your Twitter timeline is like, you don't unfollow everyone just for a conference. Your Twitter timeline is filled with tweets from people who aren't at the conference, you know, people just snarking about things at the conference, commenting on the, you know, WWC keynote, talking about stuff like that. And if you're trying to find in that mix, like, we're just trying to arrange where we're going to meet for dinner today. I can't find this in my giant timeline of stuff. If you have Glassboard, Glassboard literally is that little private room it's, it's invite only. You invite the people you want and you have this place where you can go. You can have separate glass boards for like the glass board for what bar we're going to at night, the glass board for where we're going to meet for lunch. And it's separate rooms, you know, with separate sets of people. And it's, it's like purpose built private rooms. I mean, it's it's basically like if you imagined a private IRC channel combined with the Twitter type GUI and client application experience uh, and the ability to put, post pictures and all sorts of stuff like that. Uh, so that's not what Twitter is. There are other things for that. But if you try to use Twitter like that, or if you try to say Twitter was good when it was like that, and now it's not good anymore, and now I like app.net. Right. If app.net survives, app.net's not going to be like that either. Because app.net is also in public, so to speak. Uh, and eventually, the, I believe that public will get too big for you. Uh, and small group communications, 
are different than than ones that are totally in public. Like everyone's aware that what you're saying in a small group, uh, you know, on Twitter, like because this does happen. If it's like me, like say it's like me and the other incomparable guys talking about some topic that, you know, like we're talking about Glenn. Glenn Fleischman was recently on Jeopardy. So we're yeah. all talking about Glenn's appearance on Jeopardy. Right. That suddenly feels like, oh, it's small group communication on Twitter uh, because it's just like the people who know Glenn talking about his appearance with a couple of ancillary other people. Like, w- could you t- have that play- take place in Glassboard? You could. But like when that small group communication, when those little groups appear and disappear on Twitter, everyone who's participating in that discussion is aware that it's taking place in public. Uh, and everyone is more or less on their best behavior. So you're not too familiar with someone. You're not revealing private information because even though you feel like it's just us talking to all, you know, the friends of Glenn talking about his appearance, you know, there's an extended fringe there and you know that everyone else is watching you uh, and everything you say can be seen. So you behave differently than you would if you were in the glass board, totally differently. Uh, you put your best foot forward. And in general, I see these pressures as a good thing. These kind of spontaneously mini groups that form on Twitter about a particular topic, you know, whether it's, People who know know Glenn or fans of Sons of Anarchy because you're watching it and you're live tweeting and suddenly a little micro bubble pops up around you and the people who follow you and the people you know and like uh, talking about this one thing and then it it dissipates. But during that whole thing, everyone is aware that they're talking in public. Uh, And those pressures are good because I think it makes people a little bit more civil than you would be if you were in like a glass board room. and, uh, you know, the pressures that it applies, that, I mean, I guess it's bad pressures as well. Like sometimes people feel pressured to entertain other people when they're in a small group uh, communication that they know is in public. But like the question is, why why do that? Why have these spontaneous small group communications on Twitter rather than having them in Glassboard? Why didn't we make an incomparable or friends of Glenn Glassboard and talk about the Jeopardy thing? Why did we do it in Twitter? Uh, and it's kind of the same reason I've talked about in past shows why I don't want usually want to answer one person's email that asks a common question. So if someone emails me, they ask some question that lots of people want to know. Rather than answering that one person, I'd rather wait until the podcast comes along and uh, talk about it there. Because then I can answer everyone who had that question. Or, or for example, tweet about it. If a bunch of people are sending me, you know, at replies rather than at replying them on, on Twitter for the individually each one, I'll make a public tweet that answers everyone's question. Uh, and I, I generally prefer to have a lot of conversations in public because so that's what that anyone who is watching anyone who has interest in these parties can benefit from the exchange whether that benefit is being entertained because like you know you know everyone's watching so everyone tries to make the the funniest quip about glenn being on jeopardy or something right you're you're delivering entertainment value to someone presumably or trying to or trying to one-up each other or whatever like that you know or just they want to know what's going on in that circle. They don't know you personally. They don't know Glenn personally, but maybe they listen to The Incomparable or maybe they've read your blog or, you know, they're following you for some reason. Maybe they like to see you interacting with your friends about something because they can gain something from that exchange. That's creepy in real life. Like if you're hanging out at a conference and you're talking like in a little circle and there's like a bunch of guys like on the side, like looking at you, but not looking at you, but listening to you, but looking like they're not listening to you. And that happens <laughs> in real life, right? <laughs> And like that's creepy in real life, but I feel like on Twitter, like that's that's the way it's supposed to work because I don't know that you're there like listening. Like we're all aware that even I feel like if you're in a circle, a bunch of people talking at WWC and someone's like creeping and listening to you, you're kind of skeeved out by that. And you're like, yeah, right. But on Twitter, I'm like, that's where this should happen because we're all we're all we're all aware that it's happening there. Whereas when we're in that circle, WRC, we feel like we are expressing by showing our backs to you that we would like to discuss things privately. And we don't think you should be eavesdropping, but on Twitter, we're all like, at least I, I think everyone's on board with this. Like 
I know that you're watching me and listening to this conversation I'm having with my friends. I want that to happen. I'm aware that it's happening. My behavior is based on the supposition that that's happening. I'm not offended that you're listening to this, that you're listening in on our thing because it's not really private. Uh, and so, like, if if you ever had that compulsion, and I think we've all had, like, oh, so famous person over there, I wonder what they're talking about with the other famous person, right? But you know you can't do it because it's creepy. Twitter is a place where you can do that, and it's the appropriate forum because it's not being creepy. Like, everyone is, everyone has agreed by pu- tweeting publicly that anyone who wants to follow them can, unless they've been blocked or whatever, you know. Uh, plus or minus the abuse factor there. Uh, and so this is kind of, this is why I follow people who I don't actually know. A lot of people look at my follower list and like, do you know all these people? I'm like, I know a lot of them, but some of them I know nothing about except for like that I've read their blog once or, you know, I don't even know how to pronounce their names or something, right? Because I like to see their conversations in public, right? Uh, and even if they're not engaging with me directly, I can learn from their, how they engage with the other people who follow them, who I also happen to follow, like, you know, overlapping circles, Venn diagrams. I don't know you, uh, but I'm interested in what you do. And I do know that guy you just replied to, uh, like you're, you're a friend of a friend of a friend. And you can see those on Twitter. If you, if you follow the friend that they replied to, or you can just look through their timelines. And so they have debates for people or they swap links with each other or voice their opinions on TV shows or current events. You know, I will dig into those conversations with my Twitter client and see the replies that I wasn't seeing because I don't follow the people that I went to just, and that helps me learn things, get to know the person that maybe I don't know. Maybe, maybe I found somewhere that I, someone who I want to know and I'll introduce myself next time I see them or whatever. Right. That's one of the reasons I follow people. I don't know. Cause it's the, what I feel is the acceptable version of, you know, what would be creepy in real life, because that's what Twitter is all about. Now I've said a few times on past shows that Twitter is who you follow. Uh, and that it's essential to cultivate a set of people that you want to follow. And that's not easy to do. Like people hear that and like, oh, great. Well, so if I get some sort of golden set of followers, I'm going to be entertained or educated or both or interested or whatever. Uh, I think the tricky part about finding people to follow is the people you follow are not necessarily your favorite people, your best friends, uh, people you admire, people whose work you respect, uh, people who you know personally, people who you've ever spoken to, people who have spoken to you. That is not necessarily who you follow. Yeah, maybe some of your followers are those people, but don't pick your followers based on anything other than whether you think they'd be valuable to follow on Twitter. And that's hard for people to do because they're like, oh, this is my best friend. I have to follow them on Twitter. But if they just tweet inane things that you're not interested in, don't follow them on Twitter, right? Be ruthless about who you follow and unfollow. It's not friending. You are not divorcing yourself friend-wise from someone if you don't follow them. Now, like, this is this is your opinion, man. But what if there are other people who feel differently about it? I mean, then they're going to take it personally. Like, oh, I followed him. He didn't follow me back. Like, what a jerk. Well, it's just your same take where you have your email response where like someone writes you an email and they can spend an hour writing it and it can be two pages long and like you'll read it, but you don't feel any obligation to respond to it. If you if you want to have a uh, to get value out of Twitter, you can't treat it like that. Like that that is hampering. That may be a lot of the why people try to join Twitter and find that interesting because they feel compelled to like follow their friends and their friends just tweet and name things. If if that social if you feel like that's the social contract between you and your friends, then you're stopping yourself possibly from getting value out of Twitter. If you want to, uh, you know, feel like it's something that you want to do, and you know, it's not like you have to use Twitter. Like, but I, so many people. This is why people keep coming back to it. They see so many people who 
who are busy people, who have many options, who are technology savvy, who use it so much. Like, why are they using it? I think it's because the people who do that have found a way to get a value out of it. And I think it, you have to, you can't view it as a bi-directional friend relationship because that's, that will kill, they will kill Twitter for you. It will make it so you don't check it at all. So yeah, you'll be safe in these relationships with this person who doesn't understand Twitter and thinks, oh, you didn't, you're not following me. That means you're not my friend. Uh, or you don't like the things I tweet and I'm personally insulted. Well, then you, do you cure that by saying, okay, fine, I follow you, but now I'm never going to check Twitter again because I can't stand what you tweet. Like it has no, the people who I follow and unfollow. I'm constantly changing that list and it has nothing to do with how much I do or don't like those people or know them or anything like that it has everything to do with what they tweet. And just because it doesn't mean like, I don't like the things you tweet. I disagree with the things you tweet. That's not what it means. It just means that what I want to see in my Twitter stream is I either I want to be entertained, so I follow people who are only funny. If you're not funny, even if you're talking about things I'm totally interested in, so what? Or I want to learn things, and I don't care about the guy who makes hilarious jokes. Even though I find those jokes totally hilarious, I just want to learn things. Like, everyone has their mix of what they want to get out of Twitter, and you have to deal with your your followers in that manner. You can't you can't get them wrapped up in, in your in your friend relationships. And so I feel I feel bad for people who you know, have friends who use these services who tell you when you unfollow them because the Twitter service itself doesn't like you can basically follow and unfollow people. And uh, depending on their notifications, they may or may or may not see when you follow it. And I don't think Twitter tells you at all when somebody unfollows you. So you can silently unfollow. And it yeah, shouldn't be right, right. But there are so many services that provide this. So if you have friends who are like if your mom is like, I subscribe to a service that tells me when you unfollow and you unfollowed me and now I'm disowning you. Well, you've got a bigger problem than Twitter there, I feel like. Uh, and that's a shame. But like, I really feel like you have to, you know, treat it kind of like RSS, where R- someone doesn't know if you subscribe to their blog via RSS unless you're the only one and you stop in there and their and their <laughs> subscriber count is down to zero, right. right? You know, subscribe. I mean, again, RSS is a nerdy thing, nerdier than Twitter was, but like you would feel no problem with like subscribe, unsubscribe, like oh, that's not interesting. You know, you have to use Twitter the same way uh, to to get value out of it. I feel. Uh, and I'm followed by a lot of people that I don't know. I mean, anybody with lots of followers, like you have tens of thousands of followers and, you know, and it, it, you don't know that many people. It's just not possible. So, I, so people like us, this is, uh, I'm sure the feedback I get from the show is that all this stuff is like, well, this all works fine if you have 10,000 followers, but I have five followers. So I don't, you know, uh, it doesn't apply to me. I think all this does apply to you. You just do have to build up that follower list because even though I have thousands and thousands of followers, I only follow like 100, 200 people, something like that. For years, I was trying to keep it under 100, and I eventually broke through because I follow a lot of really low-volume accounts, right? Uh, but I think you can find 100 people that you're interested in. Start by going to one, find one friend, see who they follow, and just follow the chain around and trim and revise or whatever. You can eventually, maybe you won't have as many followers as you know someone who has their own podcast, but you will be able to follow as many people. That's another mistake I see people making. They follow 700 people. Like, they have 150 followers, and they follow 700 people. That that's not a good balance. You're not, you're not going to be able to use Twitter. You, anything of value is going to be drowned out in the noise and you're just going to stop using it because it just seems like a bunch of chatter. Right? So since I'm followed by a bunch of people that I don't know, I feel a responsibility to provide something of value to them. Not because I'm like trying to preserve my follower account because my follower account does not, you know, that and $1.50 and you can ride the subway. I don't get anything out of my <laughs> follower account. Right? Like it's not like there's no prize for it. My follower account is is minuscule compared to like actual famous people and even like, you know, actual famous Mac nerds and stuff. You know, it's not, it's not about ego. I'm not like, Oh God, I can't lose a follower. But the people who do follow me, I do feel the same way. You know, I said, I don't feel any responsibility to reply to everyone's email. I do feel responsibility to read it. It's just that I can't reply to everybody. And same thing with the people who follow me on Twitter. It's the reverse relationship. You know, I, 
they followed me exp- because they know like I'm the guy who has that podcast where he complains about things or he's the guy who does that Mac OS 10 review or, you know, they, they know me in some way or he's the guy, you know, I use one of his Perl modules or something, right? They have some expectation when they follow me. And I do feel some responsibility to provide what I think they expect. Now, I didn't have to go that way. I could say what I use Twitter for is I just make jokes. I'm an I'm a amateur stand-up comedian. And even though you know me in real life as you know a computer guy or a plumber, all I'm going to do on Twitter is make jokes. Or maybe all I'm going to do on Twitter is talk about woodworking, right? You would learn that pretty quickly after following me. And you'd go, okay, well, this isn't what I expected. I follow this guy who does the Mac OS 10 reviews that I read. I thought he'd be talking about Mac nerd stuff, but he doesn't, right? So I'm not saying you have to do what your people expect. Uh, but I think you should decide what it is that you think you're doing with your account. And what I've decided that I'm doing is trying to make the people who follow me because they know of these few things that I'm somewhat well known for, not be shocked by what I think. If, if you're interested in Mac nerd stuff, you follow me, you're going to see some Mac nerd links. If you're interested in games and you know that I'm a gamer because you heard me, you know, do journey podcasts and stuff like that, you're going to see me talk about game stuff. Like if you know me from the Pearl world, occasionally I'm going to mention Pearl or Unix or things that are, are related to that. Uh, and so, you know, the first thing, microblogging is part of that. I, I have a blog, but I rarely post in it, but I do have a Twitter account and I do microblogging there and I microblog about Mac nerd stuff, Unix stuff, Star Wars, video games, like what you would expect. Right. So I feel like the people who are following me, they may not they may not be interested enough to keep following me, but they shouldn't be shocked by what I, by what they get out of it. Right. Uh, second, I do try to engage with interesting replies. It's kind of like email. I like I read all the replies, but I can't reply to all of them. Like I can't individually engage with every single person. I'm not a customer service department. I can't. I can't, you know, take every request in a queue and go through individual conversations. It's just not possible, right? But if someone says something interesting to me, I'll reply to them. I'm not like, you know, on the no reply to apologies. Nothing is worse than following somebody with a lot of followers on Twitter and they never say anything interesting related to their topics. Like, so say they're like a famous athlete and they never talk about sports, right? And all they say is like what I had for lunch and complaints about the traffic and weather and then occasionally they shill whatever it is they're currently doing, you know, buy my new movie, watch me in the new game or whatever. They never engage with anyone. You don't even think they even look at their at mentions. They never at reply with anybody. That is the worst. Like a lot of celebrities are like this. And like I kind of feel for them and they're probably not tech savvy and they have bazillions of followers instead of a couple. But I've tried to follow a lot of celebrities and I've unfollowed them because if they if I follow like a famous chef and they never once tweet about food, like that's not what I was following you for. Unfollow, right? They may, you know, and all they tweet about is like, you know, human interest tweets. Everybody has food. Here's what I had for lunch. Everyone doesn't like traffic. And what's the weather like today? Like, why am I even following you? Because I'm just so because you're famous. I want to hear what you think about the heat wave in New York City. No. Uh, So unfollow that person. Don't keep following them. He's like, oh, but I really like him. Maybe you love him. Maybe you love his restaurants. But don't don't keep following on Twitter if he's not tweeting about that. Right. And the people who don't engage say they do tweet about like what, you know, you follow some uh, person in the tech world and they tweet about the tech world and you're excited by that but if they never engage with anybody i'm like now i like i'm just reading their blog but their blog is really poor because a 140 character blog post is not good but if it sets off an exchange with a bunch of people that exchange could be good so i'd rather read their long form blog but if they're not doing that like you know so i feel like i have a responsibility to engage with people who pique my interest so i read all the replies and if someone says something interesting or has an opinion that I want to engage with or provides new information, or even if it's just someone who says something nice, you wanted to say, thanks, you know, glad you like that thing that I did. You can't do that for everybody, but uh, if it takes two seconds to do, why not? Like, I, I don't want people to think like, who's the, he's the guy 
who never replies to anybody, who never engages with I, I'm much more likely to reply to you in Twitter than I am to answer your email, uh, just because it has so much lower volume, right? Uh, and when I engage with those people who reply, I don't know these people. I've never met them before. They've been sitting there lurking, following me for a month, a week, a year, who knows? And I happen to touch on the one topic that they are like, you know, not the world expert on, but know a ton about. That's awesome for me. That's, you know, that that's an amazing experience where I'm getting information from someone who I never would have met in real life, who never would have, you know, interacted with in any way, who has been silently following me for such a long time. And they've I come upon the one topic they happen to really know about and they can teach me something. and We can have a conversation about it and I and I can in turn pass on their knowledge to the other people who follow me and those other people can discover that person. And that's, you know, I know a lot of people who, you know, that's the whole thing of like if someone if a famous person that mentions you, suddenly you get tons of followers or whatever. That's probably a bad phenomenon that has to do with bots and spam and stuff like that. But I like that. I like being able to show that you know, here's someone who's uh, got an interesting information or opinion or insight and show them to my set of followers, right? And I'm sure they do the same thing if I say something that's interesting and show it to their followers, right? Um, and the third thing I try to do to deliver some value is I, do, I th- mentioned this before, I do try to answer easy questions. Like if someone asks me something and I can answer it off the top of my head in a single tweet, I answer it. Right. I, I, I don't know if I'm famous for this now or infamous for it now. <laughs> I feel like I do it a lot, but I do the, the, the one word reply. I do tons of one word replies. Some people probably think they're rude or it's, it's an affectation or whatever. You know, some will ask me a question is like, you know, uh, do you think the the iPad mini pricing will affect how people see the iPod touch? And I will reply to that person with no, period. And maybe that seems like it's rude where I'm like I'm I'm dismissing them or whatever. What I'm trying to give them is like I don't have time to, to like go into, you know, I've talked about it for 20 minutes in this show. Like I can't do that on Twitter, especially can't do this just for you on Twitter. But if you just want to know, like if I can answer with a yes or a no or a single link, and I have it off the top of my head, I'll do it. Just, you know, just so you feel like you have some engagement with the person, right? Like, now, I, there's a limit to that because I get a lot of questions. I won't go off and Google something for somebody. Like, a lot of times someone will ask me, do you know how to uh, disable this feature in this thing? If I don't know it off the top of my head, yeah, I could probably go Google for it. But at that point, like, what am I, a mechanical Turk for your for your computer support? Like, <laughs> I just let me just yeah, let me just send a question at Syracuse a question about my computer and then he will go and Google the answer like because I could successfully Google the answer but I you know I don't like I I used to do that occasionally I'm like what am I doing I I have someone at mentioned me on Twitter and now I'm going to Google to look up the answer for them no so that that can't happen right uh, but all the other things you know where, where it's something I legitimately do know I feel some responsibility to just give them the answer because may, like. Maybe you can just giving them a pointer to a link or maybe they don't know what to Google for or something like that. You give them something to go on and you've made their day better in some way. And yeah, that was just an individual thing and everyone else didn't see it. But that I'm willing to do that with the, the single word things or even if it's just like, you know, I played Journey and really loved it. Thanks for introducing me to it. You know, say something nice back to that person. Just just a little thing. Uh, so. Boy, I'm, uh, this was supposed to be a short show. Yeah, this is oh. this is one of your epic rants. People are going to love this. It's not a rant. I'm just no. It's not, a, of course. Yes. Uh, so anyway, I, to, to wrap this up, I think this this is how I use Twitter. Chamber didn't get to talk about app.net. Maybe we'll talk about it in the next thing, uh, the the next show to contrast to this with how how I'm using Twitter. But I think 
everybody, no matter how many followers they might have, can can't doesn't mean they have to, but can use Twitter in in this way and get the same same type of value out of it that I get. And maybe they just don't want to do that. Maybe they want to use Twitter in a different way, which is fine. There are many other valid ways to do it, but this is one possible way. And I think the reason people don't have you know try Twitter and don't like it is because somewhere along the line they they treat it as something it's not they treat it as private communication they they want it to be like a small room where they can listen to people or uh they they don't know who to follow so just follow a bunch of random people and it's just a bunch of noise and it blends into the background or they they don't handle follow unfollow correctly or they have friends who you know as you said like won't let them do follow and unfollow in a way that maximizes their benefit for the service because like that flies in the face of uh, maximizing their the harmony of their personal relationships like they're that, that's where i think a lot of these things fall down and maybe it takes being kind of like a you know uh a nerd who doesn't have uh problems with this type of like you know i'm if i'm not following somebody and they're hurt by it i don't like i don't i don't feel bad about that it's like that's that's on them but i know that isn't that is probably atypical but it really does help to be able to uh curate your uh follow on follows in a way that gives you value out of it and decide what you want out of it. I decided this is the way I'm going to get thoughts out of my head. Some people will just, you know, tell someone in real life. Some people will write it in a notebook. Some people will write it in a blog. I let these thoughts out onto Twitter uh, and I get thoughts that come back. And a lot of what happens on the show from week to week is yes, it's based on the people, the feedback people send through the feedback form, but a lot of it happens on Twitter. Like, there's just a swarm. I mean, I don't look at Twitter during the show for the most time because it's just too busy. So I apologize for that. I'm sure people are trying to tweet things. I'm much more likely to see you if you do that in the chat room. But there's a swarm of things happening. And after show, I go through that Twitter backlog because I do read every tweet, uh, which is another thing that I didn't really have time to get into here. But uh, and when I go through that backlog, like that's that's practically follow up for the next show already. Like by the time <laughs> we get off the air, <laughs> there's already follow up kudo. No, like the whole sometimes <laughs> all of the follow up. Like during the week, the, the the emails trickle in as people watch the show, and I gather them up on the on the Friday before. But uh, that experience, like I can't imagine how that would work without Twitter. Because if I just had to go by what people email, not that it's a high barrier, but people got to go to the forum and type and stuff, and they feel like they're writing a long form letter and they don't know what to say. But they'll fire off a tweet in two seconds. Oh, you know, here's. Here's a link to the top speed of the Bugatti Veyron on Supersport. And if I think it's interesting enough for follow-off, I've got the link. I've got the person to attribute it to. It was short. It, you know, it's very valuable to me. So, I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> what do I think? It was an epic rant. Is this, does that come close, anywhere close to how you use Twitter? It's, it's similar in the, you know, your comments, especially about how it is, it is a, kind of a public communication and that you feel that you're on stage. I think you really nailed it right on the head there. And I think that for a lot of people, you know, Facebook and Twitter exist and people use both and they use them for different reasons. And Facebook is the place that you go to like share photos and communicate with people maybe on a more private level. And then Twitter is this public conversation that is the way that you are, you're sort of putting your voice out there. It's kind of that it lives in that space between it's like almost in a way it's like terse public emailing uh, and and your one word answer thing. Like I'll do that a lot because I feel like if people are answering a question and I can I can give them kind of a succinct answer, then I do that. And then people get upset because they're like, well, you, you just said yes. Well, <laughs> like you asked a question. 
like I said, no or yes or. Do, do they re, do they, people reply to you and express their anger at you giving some, the one word? Yeah, like yeah, I've heard it, and I've also gotten like I've been in situations where I'll answer, somebody will ask a question on to me on Twitter, and I'll answer it with one or two words, and like no no comma sorry period. You know, like if they say, oh, can I have this kind of, can I have a feed that is just John Syracuse's After Darks and just Merlin's After Darks together? Can I have that? And I'll say, no, sorry. Uh, you know, like I'm not going to write 140 characters explain, trying to f- squeeze the answer of why technically that's not something that we can do right now uh, into 140 characters. Like I would love to to do that, but sometimes I just can't. And yep. at the same time, I don't want to ignore them. So, I'll, and then like, this is not a true example, but I've had times like this. And then that person, I guess, gets upset and they'll email me and they'll say, you know, like I asked you this question and I didn't mean to upset you and I'm sorry. Or they'll write and be like, you didn't have to be a jerk on Twitter. Like, I just wanted to know this question and you know, and so it's like you lose either way. And, and so sometimes I'm just like, why do I even reply? Because like, yeah. I want to answer the question, but I don't, I don't want it to like put someone out or, or hurt their feelings. And I notice this, by the way, I notice this even more if, and I've t- tr- really tried to stop being even a little bit sarcastic on Twitter because especially it seems like we have a, a really wonderful audience of international listeners and the international listeners it seemed to not understand American or at least our version of American sarcasm at all. And even the slightest bit of sarcasm is, is perceived immediately as being an, an awful, awful person. Uh, and I've gotten a lot of emails about that because I apparently do that in a, I'm a horrible person. So I, I try not to do that. And I'm just, I'm getting put off by responding like at all, unless it's like awesome. Thanks. Like even that is, you know, too much. So I don't, I don't know, but yeah, well, you I've know, gotten... when, when people are asking for things, like they're asking you, like they, they, that's basically, it's not asking you whether something exists. Like they're asking you, can I, can you please make me this thing, this feed that doesn't exist or whatever? Yeah. And most of the things that I one word replied to are, have a lower chance of anger because they're not asking me for something. They're asking me, like, what is your opinion of this? Or do you think this? So, like, you know, how can yeah. they be offended by my opinion? Do you think the Mac Mini will come in colors? Yes, no. Like, one more answer to that is not going to be like, how dare you? But they've now requested from you, like, as the proprietor of this thing, like, please make me this feed. And I see why you feel compelled to answer that because it's, you feel terrible to, like, to see in your stream, especially if you're someone like me who reads every tweet, to see in your stream a question that you could answer, but, like, just leave them hanging, right? Like, like you know, that that makes you seem like you're one of those people who doesn't who doesn't answer things. Like yeah. I, inevitably, I have to leave people hanging at some point. But that one, it's like you can't answer that. You know the answer. The answer is no. Like, and you can't, like you said, you can't go into twenty minutes about. Well, you know, I have to balance what I do during the day. Like the real reason why you can't give that feed is like if you're the only person who wants it, if it becomes popular, maybe it will. Blah, but like, let me explain to you how to run a business, and therefore that's why you don't have this feed. Like it's not, it, you can't do that in 140. But you can answer their question, which is like, you know. uh, you're not like, don't be out there hoping for this thing because it's not going to happen anytime in the near future. And, and that is hard to pull off in in one word. But I, I have found so far, no one, not a single person has replied to me and told me I'm being rude with the one word. It doesn't mean that like half the people out there don't think I'm being rude with the one word answers. But for the most part, I have to think it's because the ones I like people don't ask me for stuff. Uh, the closest it's come is like when I've said I had like 
these Apple PR pictures that I download and everything. A lot of people are like, hey, can I get that type of thing? I will send people like that to email sometimes. Like, you know, I'll do a one reply. Like, I have no way to get this to you. It's like 15 gigs. Uh, but, you know, email me and we'll talk about it more. And, I, you know, we'll have more email discussions and we'll try some other things or whatever. It's easier to sort that out over email. But I'd rather send people off the email to have that kind of actual private one-on-one conversation if I think it's worth having. But, uh, but yeah, that's that's a tough that's a tough situation. These are these are you know not first world problems, but uh, first Twitter world problems for people who have lots of followers. It doesn't happen. Regular people aren't going to be asking you. Uh, someone you don't know is not going to ask you to pick you up from the airport, and you have to say no because like, what is the correct one word answer for a stranger saying, "Hey, can you pick me up at the airport?" Like, uh, no, I don't know who you are. Like, why would I? You know. So if some stranger who you never know asks you for like, uh, "Hey, can you send me a free T-shirt?" The answer to that is probably no, like unless like there's some sort of context surrounding this in which I want to give you a free T-shirt because you're an awesome fan or because I like you because we know each other. Have you done something cool for the site or whatever? But just out of the blue, you come up and ask me for something. The one word answer to that is is pretty simple, and that could make people angry. But I think I don't know. People can feel free to Twitter reply to me. If you've gotten a one word answer from me, did you think I was being a terrible person by giving it or did you just, you know, I don't know. I'll, I'll dwell on this more for next week when I talk about app.net and how that may or may not differ uh, from Twitter and how I'm using that. And I, so far, I've seen, you know, you, I follow you on both of those things, mostly because I have, because you're low volume. If you had a tremendous volume of tweets, yeah. unless they were super interesting, I probably wouldn't follow them because you don't, you generally don't tweet unless you have something to say. It's not like you're out there going like, you know, all right, going to the office now. All right, ran over a turtle today. Like, you know, you're not just like, <laughs> diarying your life and if something maybe you want a diary out of it, but i don't i don't usually follow people who diary their lives but you are low volume but i've seen that you use app.net and twitter pretty much the same way i see how you wary of replying to the people yeah. who want stuff from you yeah and i also see that most of the time it's like you'll save like if you have one interesting look at this big wad of wires like, but that wasn't like one of 27 <laughs> posts about about silly things inside the office that day right, right. Right. It's focused. And, you know, obviously you do mix a little bit of business related. I do follow the five by five account just because that's also an announcement type account, more sure. like RSS. Yeah. Uh, but it seems like so far you could think of this will be homework for next week. It seems like to me that you were using app.net to the extent that you do use it very similarly to use, to use Twitter with maybe a little bit more willingness to participate, but not that much. Maybe you've just been conditioned by uh, by Twitter. To, to be reticent but we have to say that for next week because now we're, we're over the two hour mark and oh I've, look at that 120 right now boom uh, just gotten, crossed it yeah I've, another I've, uh, short show for the record books all right well yeah i was good so the past like three or four shows i said short show and it was short show so i'm still i'm it's still on average an accurate prediction if you had to bet and i say it's short show bet whether it's going to be or not you should still bet that it will be all right but i think we're done all right. So if you would like to interact with John Syracuse on Twitter, he is Syracusa, S-I-R-A-C-U-S-A. It's the same thing on app.net and on Tentus. It is uh, Syracusa.Tentus. You that have it? to say it the right way. If it, tent.is. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's easy to confuse that. Tentus. <laughs> I'm Dan Benjamin on Twitter. Dan on alpha.app.net. And I think... Dan Benjamin Tentis. So that's it. You can find the uh, the show notes and links by going to 5x5.tv slash hypercritical slash 90. And uh, links to the sponsors are there as well. Please uh, check them out and support the show. And I think that is it, John. So have a wonderful week. We'll be back again next week. Have a good one, yep. John. Bye.